0: is Maureen Milliken, And this is Rebecca Milliken, And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. Today we have our, our special returning guest. Oh, we have a guest. Host. Our older sister Liz, yes. who has been the guest host on some of our most popular yes, episodes. Yes, she she's very the popular. The Kyron Horman. She's our Oregon correspondent. I think Kyron Horman's our most popular. It is. It is. It's our biggest one. And then you did, oh, the couple that Drove yeah the the, um, the, 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 the case of the family <laughs> annihilation and we're yes. recording on Christmas Eve although this won't be up for a few weeks because I have to get our by the time this is up you'll have listened to our Robert
1: Merton uh,
0: one yes. and so this will be our first podcast of 2019 yes it
1: will be and there is a Christmas Eve element. And oh So I, it is appropriate in a that's way. That's great. That yeah. But received.
0: before we get to that, I'm... You have updates? Yes, I do have some updates. Speaking of Robert Burton... And by the way, we're recording at our mom and dad's house, if you hear a dog bark, It just adds atmosphere. Sirens, because we're in the big city. In any case, Robert Burton... The subject of our last episode, the day we recorded it, the Maine Supreme Judicial Court upheld his conviction, his October 2017 conviction, his 55-year sentence for killing Stephanie Gin Gibo, his ex-girlfriend. His appeal was based on the fact that he wanted the jury options on the voir dire, I can never pronounce that right, Voir um, yeah, to be able to answer dear. not sure as well as yes and no to certain questions. And because they weren't allowed to answer, not sure, but had to answer yes or no, He, um, that was part of his appeal. The other one is the fact that his two burglary convictions were allowed, and he was appealing on that basis that they should have not been. The Maine Supreme Judicial Court knocked that down. That's probably his last appeal since he wasn't, you know, Maine doesn't have the death penalty. He wasn't sentenced to life. He was sentenced to 55 years. You know, there's a point where you run out of money for appeals, He's not a rich guy, so he may be at that point. My other update is to our episode three. Ayla Reynolds, the missing Maine toddler, who it's seven years since her disappearance, so she'd be nine by now. It was December seventeenth, two 2011, that she was last seen. Her mother, Trista Reynolds, is suing Ayla's father, Justin Petro, in a civil suit. A wrongful death civil suit. Justin, who lived in um, Waterville, Maine, with his mom when he was caring for Ayla and she disappeared, cannot be found to serve with the suit, apparently, I think there was an article last year that said he was in California. They found him, but he said, he, he said, I'm not him. Right. I mean, <laughs> and, I think you
2: look just like the picture that I have <laughs> to serve you with.
0: Right. And he's like, well, that's not me. In any case, they weren't able to serve him. She filed the suit in Cumberland County Court in Portland, Maine. And we'll see what happens. She did have Ayla declared legally dead I think last year yeah, and that was one, yeah. so she could file the suit. And listen to episode three, we had reporter Ben McKenna on that one. It was before that's we that's a pretty popular Yeah, it's before we perfected our sound quality. But I think you yeah, did Yeah, because Momo sounds like she's like you sound like you're in like a
2: cage. There, cave there somewhere. was a yeah. similar
1: there was a similar thing that happened where Kyron Horman's biological mother sued Oh yeah um the stepmother who is the one we you yeah. know is the most right. likely suspect in Kyron Horman's disappearance but she was convinced by i think whether it was the DA or whoever the investigating entity was to drop the lawsuit it was it's still not a cold case i think so in the with the fears that her suit would could interfere right. with if the investigation right because one thing about prosecute. a civil
0: one thing about a civil suit is first of all the
1: the burden of proof thank is you lower, is yeah. lower mm-hmm. so it's a
0: propensity rather than reasonable doubt yeah. but also with a civil suit you can bring out things that that you can't bring out in a court right. of law. Yeah, what's
1: allowable In And, and a lot of
0: reasons or, yeah. people file wrongful death suits is so evidence can be... Yeah, because there's right. some things that... the like, You depose people, right, for instance, right. and so it'll be interesting to see what happens, and it's... It may be the fact that she was talked out of it, and the Kyron Horman thing means that they're closer... To a yeah, it was a little or,
1: while ago that yeah. she dropped it, though, and I don't think they've issued a death warrant yet in his case. So, so he hasn't to, been, because Ayla's case... If he case, hasn't been declared dead right, yet, Right, Ayla's yeah, case I, I, was,
0: I don't know if she was, you know, her mother allowed her to be declared dead, but it was it became homicide rather than a missing person case within um, a short time yeah. after, pretty after pretty. her disappearance. And by the way, I can put that on our list of things to, to ask, ask Matt, Matt. about. Okay. Oh. So I also have an
2: update. Carol Sherrill Oh the Sam I think it was the Gary Gilmore
0: <laughs> episode. I th- was the,
2: it, and then you up. What this is there was a woman in Maine. It was last June, I believe. She drove on to a Little League field and started driving around the bases while a game was being played. Kids were running out of her way and she drove around <laughs> the bases in her <laughs> car. <laughs> I shouldn't lie. There was a Guy trying to close the gate to keep her out. I think she was trying to drive into another field, or maybe that was when she drove in. I it's can't unclear
0: remember. what was going on with the but gate. But
2: she hit him and he died. It was a guy in his 60s. And then it came out that the guy in his 60s <clears throat> had actually been a hit and run driver in the late 60s, fatal <laughs> hit and run, where he killed a four year old girl in New York State. And he never told anyone until he was found out and he came forward about 10 years ago. So it was almost like a karmic thing that he yes but this woman anyway carol her name is carol Chero. she pled not guilty and not criminally responsible on november 9th in connection to the death of douglas parkhurst and she is now in the mental hospital in Augusta. it's called riverside riverside or riverview riverview she's still stuff is still going on in court so right now she's in limbo but i mean she obviously has issues yeah don't put like The mental hospital. Is probably the most appropriate place. She I wonder though if she had problem. hit, if she had hit and killed a child, she'd be in jail. If, yeah, I think she would. If it hadn't been a person that was already harmed, yeah. yeah. right? Yeah, right. Mean,
0: uh, well, the law is the law. I know. So There's always that I human, know. that human element of retribution, yes. that biblical human element. Yes. that So that was my only update. Without further ado, our S- sister, straight out of Portland, Oregon. The
1: other Portland, as we like to call it. Yes. Yes. Here's our sister Liz. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful. I'm so honored to be back. (laughs) And yet again, the Pacific Northwest serves up some very interesting murderous crimes. It's a
0: haven for serial killers. Yes,
1: it is. We do seem to sort of specialize in that. And this is a case of a serial killer. And it's interesting because it was not one of these serial killers where the public at large was aware of this going on. It wasn't like the Zodiac killings or the a lot Green River killings yeah. or something where there was ongoing, at the time of the deaths, there was public awareness of it. So I became aware of this case or these series of cases and this one man who was linked to all of them because of a really, really well-done Series that was done a few months ago in the Oregonian, based in Portland and is the main newspaper of the state of Oregon. And it's a very comprehensive multimedia five part series based on a lot of really comprehensive reporting. But what was also interesting about it was the guy who is the suspect and who ultimately was convicted of one of the murders was on the investigators and the police and the sheriff's radar. Almost from the beginning, and it's an interesting case of where lack of physical evidence, limitations of uh, forensic techniques mm-hmm. uh, that were in place in the 70s and 80s, and and also the, the kind of canniness, I guess I could say, of the suspect uh, made it... Almost a imp- very difficult purpose and way.
0: And I'd like to and add, too, that people's perceptions of behavior, right, right. both his behavior and the behavior of women yeah. and females, young right. women, stereotypes and assumptions people make right, about people's right. behavior that we're still making in some ways, but not as bad as...
1: Yeah, and so there are some missteps like that, but there also were was a definite understanding that this guy was under suspicion early on in a series of crimes. So I thought this would be a great candidate. Yeah. So before I kind of get into the details, I'll just set the stage a little as I'd like to do, especially mm. for people who don't live in the western United States or the Pacific Northwest. These crimes occurred from the late 1970s until the early 1990s along Highway 20, which is an interstate Is that right? Yeah, it it goes
0: from the Oregon coast to Boston. Yeah,
1: it's it crosses the country going east west. It goes across Oregon. The particular stretch of Route 20 is the section that goes from Sisters, which is a charming little town up in the Cascade Mm -hmm. Mountain Range. I think it's about 175 miles or so until it ends at Newport on the central Oregon coast. And through much of that, in fact, the only cities of any size it goes through. Even Sisters is what most people consider a small town, though it's much more developed than it was in the 70s. Um, Sisters has become a little tourist mecca. But the only other towns of any real size is Corvallis, which is where the Oregon State University is, and Newport itself. And none of those would really qualify anything like a big city uh, by anyone's estimation. So long stretches of this highway are very rural, heavily timbered. Some of them, it's like a two-lane highway And it is, as one, you know, the reporter said, it's like a quiet country lane along Mm -hmm. some pretty long stretches. Yeah. A very beautiful, but really there's some really remote near wilderness that this highway goes through. So that was the scene of this series of crimes that occurred in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, So I thought I'd start by just reading the introductory paragraphs in the first episode, because I think it kind of introduces the subject matter well. And then I'll kind of go through the sequence of events um, that led to this almost certainly serial killer being caught and finally and convicted and put in jail, put in prison for one of these murders and the kind of evidence that links him to these other crimes as well. So this is beginning with the Oregonians. Oh, I'll also say that most of the information I'm giving you now is from this Oregonian project, and it is a project. So there are five main news stories, but there's also um, very well done, about 20-minute long documentary, video mm-hmm. documentaries yeah, yeah, for each mm-hmm. episode. And then there's also links to all kinds of documentation, including court records, police reports, old news coverage. So I've really f- used the Oregonians project for this, although the Bend Bulletin um, is yeah. one newspaper that I did check some news articles. Bend is a city in central Oregon and covered A lot of where these crimes happened actually was kind of in their range of reporting. Right, wasn't Um, wasn't that
0: like the closest like actual
1: actual city city. really is Bend, and it's kind of over the mountains, more into the central Oregon. Right, and the Albany Democrat Herald, the Albany is a city city if you can call it that, along I five, the I five corridor that goes northwest from you know California, you know Southern California up into. Through Washington State. Um, but it's really, the Oregonians, you know, this project was so comprehensive and they were drawing upon all these multiple news sources. So I'm, I thought it would be good to just quote the first four paragraphs of the Oregonians' first installment on this. Kate Turner vanished 40 years ago while running along an empty road in a rustic central Oregon retreat. She was kidnapped and killed, her remains dumped in the deep woods. Then Rashonda Pickle went missing from the desolate highway compound where she lived, never to be seen again. She was 13. It wasn't long before teenagers Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson disappeared from a camping trip to the coast. Their bodies were found off a logging spur, and now appears their killer was the same man. The breadth of his crimes has never been revealed until now. In its final 170 miles, U.S. 20 passes through the Cascade foothills, the Willamette Valley, and Oregon's Coast Range, before ending at the Oregon Coast. John Arthur Ackroyd was a longtime state highway mechanic, whose route along U.S. 20 wound through some of Oregon's most spectacular scenery, from the Cascade foothills to the coast. From the outside, Ackroyd seemed to lead an ordinary life. Raised in small-town Oregon, he hunted and fished, held a steady job, and married a woman with a couple of young kids. But detectives long-suspected Ackroyd preyed on women who disappeared along or around Highway 20 from the late 1970s through the early 1990s. They could prove only a single case, Turner's 1978 murder. The rest haunted investigators who had pursued him through the years, they were still after him when Ackroyd died alone in his prison cell two years ago. By then, the Oregonian was also investigating Ackroyd. It really begins in 1977. Mm -hmm. The string of crimes that has been linked to John Ackroyd. So I'll start with that, and I'm going to go kind of chronologically uh, through and then kind of talk also about how investigators started to piece together. Um, And this first case is really distinctive, but also kind of an indication of what went wrong, because it was a case where there was a survivor, and she was basically dismissed and not believed. And if the, I don't even know if you can call investigators in her case, (laughs) if she uh, had been believed much of the rest of yeah. the other crimes that were committed could have been prevented
2: it seems like that happens so often in yeah these, yeah. In these yeah stories
1: right yeah so the woman and she insisted in fact when she was being interviewed to be named because she wanted her name to be known Marlena uh, Gabrielson was a young 19 year old uh, mother and new wife in 1977 and she and her husband went to sister's This little town back then was even much less of it there, apparently. This town up in the mountains along um, Route 20 for a rodeo there. She and her husband went to the rodeo. This was June of 1977. Marlena had her mother babysit the baby, and they were going to go up to sisters and camp overnight, attend the rodeo up there. So she said they went up there.
0: And wasn't it like their first, like, time out after having... Yeah, baby. I think so.
1: So it was like a big, of, oh, you know, sorry. kind of spending time as a married couple so kind the of thing. Like And they were young. Old. They were very young. She's apparently still married to it's got, mm. her husband. And they p- pitched their tent in a campground right outside of Sisters. And they sat around eating and having a few beers and everything. And she said she still doesn't remember what it was about. She and her husband got into one of those arguments you might have. It seemed to have something to do with him wanting to go off and you know, socialized with some other people, you know, and in the middle of the night, and she was mad at him and she decided she was going home. She wanted to be with her baby. Their home was Sweet Home, which was a good 80 to 90 miles, you know, west on Highway 20. In those days, she said she often hitchhiked and never really gave up much of a thought. She was started walking out towards the highway to find a ride, and a guy, actually a stranger, said, Hey, a buddy of mine is, is going to take me um, home and you know, he can give you a ride too. So she got in this big old beat-up pickup truck with two men she didn't know. And she said she now she can't believe how stupid she was. But it was, you know, Back
2: then, people, people did it. Did it. And,
1: and, you know, a lot of people hitchhiked. You know, she had never had a bad experience before. And she said, you know, she had a little bit to drink. The other man got out after a while and she was alone in this truck. And she said at that point she noticed, well, she noticed when the man got out of the truck, that he put his hand, to open the door, he put his hand outside the open window to um, open it and then rolled up the window and slammed the, the door ah. shut. And she realized she said in her sleepy kind of semi inebriated state, she realized that there was no door handle. Mm. Um, and she said sure even, kill a red And flag. she said even then she didn't get too big of a red flag. I mean that, but she was in a trap, basically. There was no way for her really to get out of it. And she also said as she was sort of drifting off to sleep, she noticed a coffee can on the floor with a hunting knife in it and a um, shotgun uh, kind of behind her head on a rack. She uh, wakes up maybe an hour later, uh, being dragged out of the cab of the truck. She said what woke up was her head banging on the frame of the window. She's, she's being dragged by her feet, and he drags her out to uh, a bit off the highway. And she's very eloquent in her interviews. because One of the things she says is she remembers sort of lying on this clearing, and there were these little, beautiful little flowers everywhere and she's like, how can something so horrible happen someplace where I'm surrounded by such beauty, you know? And that's one of the interesting kind of yeah, evocative never things never of the that. series of yeah. crimes. This is a very, very beautiful stretch of landscape, you know, mm-hmm. this highway goes through. And it's, it's kind of spectacularly beautiful. And that kind of this guy is, you know, doing these horrible things all along this beautiful stretch. She said he pulled her jeans down and ripped them right down to the, the seam of the cuffs. This is a distinctive... Yeah. detail and used a knife I think to cut off her underwear and I He he raped her then said uh, you know he kind of was standing there with this with his knife in his hand and he said what am I going to do with you now oh. and she said take me home and he was seemed kind of dubious and she she said I have a small baby please take me home I swear I won't say anything so he actually because her own pants were ruined he gave her a grimy pair of his own pants from the back of the trunk to wear she gets in the car she manages to grab her ripped up clothes and her boots and gets in the cab with him and she said the whole way she's trying to placate him
0: cut her boots as well
1: i don't think so but um he did cut there was another case where the clothing or it may have been the boots were cut off in another case but but the cutting and ripping of the clothing was kind of distinctive and showed up in a couple of other cases where he was the suspect he said at one point oh maybe you could be my girlfriend and she's like oh yes you know because of course she's trying to placate him and and she just wants to get home she has him take her to her mother-in-law. And I was just
0: going to say, that's one of the things, even nowadays, that yeah. I think people, particularly men, don't understand, yeah. is you just want to get out of the situation
2: alive. Right, right. And why were you being nice to him? Mine, and yeah. a lot of yeah. women do that.
1: That's
2: yeah. the way yes. he survive,
1: Yeah. Yes, to right. So she has him leave her off at her mother-in-law's, who's taking care of her baby, and he takes off, you know, like a, you know, a rat, I guess, as soon. And she runs up to the house, and her mother-in-law Opens the door, is like, oh my god, what happened to you? Because she had all kinds of plant twigs in her hair, and she's holding, she's wearing these this disgusting pair of men's pants, and she's got her other clothing in her hands, and she's obviously distraught and um, she insisted rather than her mother-in-law wanted her to take a bath and call the police and then take a bath and she said no I'm going to go to the hospital and get a rape kit done and oh. I think it was kind of in the early days yeah Canada. this was 1977 right. so right. that was even and of course yeah. almost certainly it wasn't because they're now in Oregon they, they have a huge backlog oh, thousands yeah. Yeah. of yeah. rape yeah. kits that were never tested yeah. but and they're every, finally every in the country yeah, does, that's doing. why
2: Mariska Hargitay is, has some foundations
1: yeah. That, yeah. yeah so she got a rape kit done and when she talked to the, and they have actual, the actual documents of the police reports in her case embedded in this um, series, and they, um, you know, dismissed her. You know, yeah. they, she told them the story. She was the rape kit, her, what do you call examination, showed definite, you know, she had bruising. Um, her, she was swelling in the vaginal wall. There were all the physical signs that had been a violent assault. So even in that case, you know, where you have, like, evidence like that, and the, she showed them her ripped jeans. And she was able to identify him well enough that they could track him down and from the description of the truck and everything. And his story, when they interrogated him, was, of course, she had seduced him, and he was reluctant, of course, and that she had ripped her jeans when she took off her clothes. Because oh, she was and, so anxious. And, they, and basically, the detectives believed him, and without uh-huh. really explaining why, just... Yeah. basically didn't believe her. And
0: she is, I don't know if the, this is a spoiler, but she's Native American. Yes, she
1: is Native American, yeah. and she thinks that had something to do with it, and I'm sure that had to help. Sure that happen. was one of the things. She took a polygraph, and they told her she failed, but with no explanation, and, you know, who knows? So, and, and people he,
0: wonder why women don't report. And, and
1: apparently, <laughs> John, Aykroyd, John Aykroyd took a polygraph, and, and they said he passed it. But, you know, this is one of the things with polygraphs, they can be very subjective. Well, and, and you don't
0: know how they're asking the questions yeah, or what they're asking. Right. Also, he's a fucking sociopath or psychopath, mm-hmm. yeah. which makes it a lot easier to yeah. pass a
1: polygraph. Yeah. So I'll just say at this point who John McWord was. By this time, I believe he already had his state job. Uh, he was born and bred in a sweet home, Oregon, which is a little town along Highway 20 in Lynn County. You know, kind of working class, you know, really uh, kind of rough upbringing. And he was a hunter and fisher and outdoorsman. I don't remember exactly when he had this state job which he had throughout the time period but at some point around this time he had gotten this job as a, a state highway mechanic so his job was to get calls one of the things he did was help motorists that were broken down uh-huh. and um you know he would like fix people's cars along the way if it was possible or fix uh, state highway equipment and trucks along the way or deal with issues with you know state. Highway projects, you know, he's kind of he did all this mechanical work for the highway system, and that gave him a lot of one thing when he was on the job. Used uh, this is Oregon Department of Transportation ODOT. He would use, he have a ODOT truck as his disposal that he could use. He was unaccounted for often for hours at a time. <laughs> In fact, his supervisors consistently had issues with him, even though the nature of the job was that he would be alone driving along the highway. He often did seem to slack off, and and sometimes. Wouldn't come into work for days at a time. Later, investigators linked often in many of those days, times where he took days off, around the times of these disappearances uh, yeah, and sure. and and murders. And he was known for kind of his laziness. You know, he might check in and then like take off most of the day and things and like yet that. And
2: Yeah, he still had a job. Yeah, and yet yeah. he still had a job. Well, we worked with people. And in yeah. fact, he we collected his people state people like pension that. throughout yeah.
1: his time when he was in prison. Oh, mm. so as much as I I'm proud of being a public employee and I believe in government employment and I believe in, I think
0: once you're convicted of murder um, yeah
1: once you're convicted of murder I think your ability to draw on the state pension system should really be
0: especially modified. when it's proven that you've taken <clears throat> advantage of your state job to help he make your serial time, time from a easier job. yeah yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: even if he was just taken off to go fishing still yeah.
1: not, you know yeah so anyways basically nothing came of Marlena's rape accusation and she was basically dismissed and not believed. So then about a year later, another case happened. Kay Turner was a 35-year-old married woman. She was worked with Planned Parenthood in Eugene, Oregon for a time, and she was working in a some sort of public health agency as a manager. She and her husband, with some friends, were spending the Christmas holiday in 1978 up at a place called Camp Sherman, which is a bit further west more towards sisters on Route 20, uh, kind of getting up into more of the upslopes of the Cascade Range. It's a kind of rustic resort type of place with, where you can go fly fishing and, you know, there. Are, I think there's snowshoeing and stuff like that in the wintertime and hunting and things. So she and her husband and a group of friends we up there. She was a very avid runner. She had run a marathon earlier in the year, and this is kind of the beginning. pre you know, at the University of Oregon had pre right? Had been you know, doing this thing, and Nike was just starting up. It was it was re- quite new still. Nike shoes and the Nike company, and uh, she was a very disciplined runner. And she went out around 8:15 the morning of Christmas Eve to do a run. It was a crisp a cold day. Um, There was snow on the ground, but it sounds like it wasn't totally frozen. And in fact, another woman in the group was going to go with her.
3: Mm -mm. And um,
1: her husband was interviewed in one of the videos and he said his wife was a less experienced runner Slower. and kind of basically at the last minute decided that Kay would probably want to run too fast and run much further she planned about like an eight mile run I and mean, she demurred and kind of didn't go along and I'm sure it's kind of a haunting thing like what would have happened if but they the had two realm, of them maybe, what he have not attacked them but as we'll see no. two women together or two people together didn't necessarily just right you can guy. never
0: look back and right. say oh if I had only done right this, but sure have.
1: it must be and also, if
0: she was time. a faster runner, she may have been way right, up ahead right, of the exactly. slow, slow go right. no, there. Right.
1: right. So Kay went out on this again. You know, remember you have to imagine it's a it's this is a rather a remote, it's a rustic resort thing Woods. with not very few people around. I think it might be a couple of miles off the highway. And they do
0: a great job in the video of showing yeah. the terrain. Yeah, and you've and
1: got a lot so. of great kind of drone shots of the from yeah. aerial shots of the terrain. I think it really gives you a. Really good idea of the layout and you know the the environment. So she doesn't come back. You know it's supposed to be about an hour run. After a couple hours, she hasn't come back, and her husband and friends are getting really concerned because she's this is not like her. And what could have happened? They went out searching for her. So found no sign of her, and then very quickly called the police and said, this is definitely suspicious. And was this
2: 1978? This yeah. is 1978.
1: So this is Christ- the day of Christmas Eve, and okay. they begin the day, they almost immediately begin kind of a massive search. In the video on this episode, one of the later investigators had a bit of a critique of how they searched, and there was something that happened that got them off track, too. Mm-hmm. So this is what they knew within about a day of her disappearance. She had been seen running by an ODOT employee, and I don't have his name right in front of me, but another, someone other than John Aykroyd. He was coming, I think, off, or he was beginning his shift for the day, and he saw her running. Um, At some point, whether before or after, he also saw John Aykroyd in his ODOT truck um, on the same stretch of road. This was a road that was not the highway, but kind of off the highway, kind of surrounding the Camp Sherman area. So he saw both Kay and John Aykroyd. So there was someone who put John Aykroyd, At the the area. In the the area. Then something happened. The the investigators got distracted. Um, In a search of her office in Eugene, they found evidence that she had actually had assignations with two different men in the weeks leading up to this incident. So they got really, and there was at least one investigator who said, you know, we really think. This guy, John Aykroyd, you know, they had the fact that he had been accused of a rape at some point the year before at some point comes up, you know, is, pops up on the radar. Someone says, hey, isn't Duh. this a guy? Right. But then as soon as they found these other complications in her personal life, they kind of went down that road. And ultimately, those didn't pan out. But by the time they kind of brought their attention back to John Aykroyd, because of some of his own things that he did.
0: They focused a lot of attention on investigating the husband right. rather than looking for evidence at the scene. And it was yeah. winter and it snowed. Right.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that later investigators said that he thought was a, mis- you know, a mistake and the way they he said, he said most Killers like this, they don't go far to dump the bodies. He said the way to do the search was they had a rough idea of her running route, would to retrace her entire running route and look like a uh, hundred yards on either side of the roads, on either side of her running route. Mm-hmm. He said if they had done that, they would have found. Her body, or like at least some of Chad the Levy, items.
0: Chad same thing. Yeah, and yeah. they would have. He That's said right. he, much, much
1: earlier, earlier, like in the in the days after she was gone, and of course she was already dead, but they didn't know that. But some of the things that made. But it's John easier Aykroyd, to
0: solve a mystery when you find an actual body, right? right. That still has tissue. Right. And, so, know.
1: so what happened was John Acroyd. They have this report from another ODOT worker that John Ackroyd was at the scene, and John Ackroyd... Or in the area. Was in the area. Yeah, not at the, scene. They, don't know what the yeah, scene. they didn't know what the yeah. scene is, right. Um, and there was an employee at the Camp Sherman General Store, a woman who said that during the search that's going on for the you know couple weeks or more, this guy, John Ackroyd, came in a number of times and was looking at the missing persons poster and kind of seemingly and showing a lot of interest. No. Yeah. No. Um, well, there was a scene. And and he was saying, something. no, she
0: didn't really look like that. <laughs>
1: he was hanging around where they're the missing persons posters. And, in fact, she saw him masturbating yeah, the aisle. Tough. Yeah, she went to get her husband to confront him. And by the time they got back, he was gone. Mm-hmm. Right. But so the police finally, after... Because that's of,
0: something a normal person would do when they saw a missing person. Right, yeah, yeah. Get, ex- is, get sexually excited. So sexually you know? excited they had to jerk off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right, right. right. Yeah. So, the ways of men are mysterious. Yeah, that's right. Well,
1: especially when they're serial killers. So the police finally, after kind of getting waylaid by the personal vagaries of Kay Turner's life, kind of come back to John Aykroyd in this report from a coworker that his truck was riding down the same road um, that morning. And so they track him down. And he said, oh, yeah, I did. I did, early in the morning, I was driving around, you know, kind of wasn't really going to do a shift, but I saw her. And they were like, well, why, you know, why Mm -hmm. didn't you say, you know, that you had seen her? Um, And he had no real good explanation. He said, Bo, but I spent most of the day with my buddy. You know, we hung out at the trailer where he lives and everything. And this is like 10, 15 miles away. And so he had this supposed kind of alibi. That they had plans to go hunting that day, and they had ended up kind of just hanging out at his trailer most of the day, and and his buddy Beck. Roger Dale Beck's wife substantiated their alibi and said that they had intended to go out deer hunting, but weren't really out most of the day and were hanging around the trailer where they lived. So they really didn't have any physical evidence, and this guy was acting suspiciously and didn't really give a good account, but seemed to have an alibi. So then. Eight months later in August, the same woman, you know, at the Camp Sherman general store, this guy, John Ackroyd, comes running in. He's perspiring and seems very agitated. And she said she noted his perspiration. And the the detective who showed up also noted it because they said it was not a a very hot day. So he comes in and says, oh, I found the remains of Kay, that woman who was missing, that Turner woman who's missing. And then he says to the woman, in direct quotes, I'm in real trouble, I'm the last person who saw her alive. <laughs> and she's thinking, what? So, of course, she calls the police. They show up. He brings them out. And, of course, it was, like, kind of an area right off of, you know, the road that she would have been running on. Right. Kind of remote area. He claimed he was with his dog for rabbit hunting. And it's not an area that's known for rabbits. So, that was also kind of suspicious. When the investigators got there, they said that things didn't really seem right because there were, like, just a few scattered bones, and scraps of clothing that they said, if you're used to being out in the woods, this is the kind of thing you see a lot because people dump stuff. And there was nothing in particular that would have made a, just a person who had no connection to the crime think of this missing woman all those months later. But he immediately he said, and then later in his statements denied it, But this woman swore that what he said to her was, I found the remains of that Turner woman. And so they immediately, why is he connecting the, this little scraps of stuff? But they did find that it was, in fact, her clothing, her, I, I think it was, cut up shorts, running shorts. Mm-hmm. She had Nike shoes on. Oh, I forgot to mention that one of the things in the day the first day they were searching for her that they did found it was the one physical clue along one of the roads where she would have been running then frozen over but it obviously was slushy earlier in the day they found tracks of the waffle sole of those Nike shoes on the footprints of what looked like a large man oh. when what looked like from the footprints had been a scuffle and a struggle and then the woman's waffle sole shoe body being like away so that would have yeah. been a good
0: place for them to go look well
1: this is another thing where the people who found these footprints they were hunters who were experienced trackers and again the investigators because they already were kind of thinking about the husband and didn't kind of follow through enough mm. on that early mm. clue mm. so and yes where they her remains were found were not far from where those footprints yeah were so anyways you know he's immediately comes under suspicion shortly after this but they could never kind of connect him to the the crime in any kind of real physical way. And he had this alibi. It wasn't until later that they basically reopened the investigation. Um, several months later, another hunter found her skull. I think it was maybe as much as a quarter mile away. And it was a it was, it was a distance, yeah. Oh, and another thing, it's just, these are, this is important too. Among her, the remnants of her clothing I think were found were her Timex watch, which was stopped at 9.17 mm-hmm. a.m. And on the day. Yeah, the, the day. day. Oh,
0: my God. On the
1: day, and it looked like the stem had been knocked out in a struggle, and that's what stopped right, the clock, watch. Right, because they asked
0: the Timex, and the only way, you know, because they take a look and keep on yeah, ticking, is yeah. that right. the stem, and they think it was when he was... He
1: pulled off her...
0: Right, he pulled sh- off her shirt or did something mm-hmm. to her wrist or something that had a direct impact on the... Right, which was quite fateful. Yeah, it was. they were able to
1: pinpoint, and they found that wow. they eventually found one of her Nike shoes virtually intact. And then one of the detectives at the scene happened to look up and see a a tree branch above a bird's nest and saw all this, you know, glinting in the sun, this blonde hair in uh, the nest. And, and nest. we like, ooh. Yeah. We got. So, so several months later, her skull is found, and even on the those scattered bones they found at the site, most of them, in fact, were animal bones, and only her mandible was found at that point, and then later her skull was found a ways away. That's all they found of her right. actual and they body said, remains. Right. And, uh,
0: and he was a hunter and stuff, and you wouldn't look at that stuff and immediately assume it was human remains. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah so basically, in a sense, the case kind of goes cold because of lack of physical we evidence. We don't know. 12 years later, in 1990, something happens. July 10th, 1990. By this time, John Ackroyd has married a woman named Linda. They actually mar- got married in the mid-80s, divorced after a year, but continued to live together. She had two young children, a girl and a boy from an earlier marriage. Uh, and apparently it seems like John Ackroyd. she had had a string of unsuccessful relationships. She was a hardworking, you know, single woman working like as a maid and, you know, doing mm-hmm. stuff like that. And John Eckert apparently seemed to be a bastion of stability for her. He had hmm. this good job. Her son talks about it in the videos. You know, he had this good job, on state highway worker, good yeah. pay. But he it went-
0: also shows when you watch her video yes. of how very poor women who don't have a lot of options right. end up being backed into relate- right. very bad relationships. And make
1: excuses and get into denial. Yes. Um, and, what, and there are a, a number of things that indicate really good evidence in fact that he was abusive physically abusive and oh, almost sure. certainly sexually abusive to uh, well, well, the daughter the daughter well so. they
0: interviewed the son and yeah. he was obviously physically abusive and the son makes this great point of and he was a year or two younger than the he daughter. was a year
1: older than her he was older. 14 and okay. she was 13 when but she he said appear.
0: when you're walking on eggshells every single day you don't think of, you know, ways, especially when you're a kid, to get help. Or and this was the, this was still, even though it was 1990, people weren't listening right, to kids right. and stuff. He said, "You're just hoping that that day, that right. you don't get the shit beat out of yeah, you or that's whatever. Right. You're just well, yeah." Well, he talks yeah. about
1: the friend. They interviewed a lot of the, several of the kids they knew in school. Uh, two young women who were close to Rashonda, the 13-year-old girl, who said that she and her brother showed up regularly with, like, black, black eyes. And um, at one point, like, part of her, um, patch of her hair had been ripped out. And, and she was,
0: would say, my stepdad did yeah, this she, to me, It's not yeah. like she And was. apparently,
1: before she disappeared, she was actually talking to a guidance counselor at school. And I'm not sure if mandatory reporting was in place. I don't back think it was. was. I don't think it, it was. was a... But it really makes you feel these kids had obvious physical signs of physical abuse and then she told her friends, apparently at least one of them had also been um, sexually molested and, and recognized the signs of it yes. in her, that her stepfather was molesting her. So anyway, she, July 10th, 1990, this 13-year-old disappears. What happened, what seemed to happen was on the July 10th, the mother and John right get ready to go to work. Of course, school's, you know, out for the summer. And she pays Rashonda a list of chores to do. Should they go off to work. What seems to have happened is at some point in the day, John Ackroyd comes back to the house. And because yeah, he can leave well, his but, job whenever. Yeah, right, right. he's when, a free bird. And when um, Linda comes home that night, there's no sign of Rashonda. However, John Ackroyd very unusually very, initiates a sexual arrangement. Yeah. And apparently she told him that investigators really perked up their ears about this because she said they almost never had sex. And, and he told the investigators about it and said they, it was really great sex. And investigators who are already suspicious of him, um, are thinking he, he's excited because he did something to Rashonda. So it's getting on towards evening and, uh, Linda is like, where's, uh, Rashonda apparently walked, oh, and where they were living was a place called Santium Junction. And it's a compound basically for the ODOT. Operations. Anytime
0: um, there's a compound. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know.
1: So it's like where they had the tr- they store trucks and stuff, and a few of the ODOT workers live there, but it's not a real town or community. There weren't any kids, Rashad right, mobile age. Home. Yeah, there are a few mobile homes, and it's, um, you know, they're like piles of the dirt they use, you know, in highway projects, and trucks get parked there. And um, it's a kind of workaday, basically, center of operations for ODOT, not really a town. And it was quite, it's quite isolated and remote. It's right off Route 20, where Route 20 and Route 22 come together. So she usually was riding her bike around outside and everything, and she was nowhere to be seen. And Linda says, well, we should call the police. They apparently went out and looked for her, and no one had seen her. And he said to her, oh, no, you should wait till the next day because you have to wait 24 hours to report on the same person. Mm -hmm. So she waits, and then when when her daughter, is there's still no sign of her by the next day, and she doesn't seem to be at any of her usual friends' houses or anything, she calls the police, and you can hear they have the recording. The dispatcher is just totally perplexed. That she, has, she says to her, why, so she your daughter's been gone since yesterday morning? Why didn't you call earlier? And she said, oh, well, my understanding was that you had to wait 24 hours. And she said, no, not for a child. But people when, do
0: believe that. Yeah,
1: people do. it's indicative that John yeah, yeah, told her not I'm to. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So the police begin looking for Rashonda and, and quite quickly, John Aykroyd, because of his behavior, um, becomes a person of interest and in, um, in a suspect. They found almost immediately he didn't seem particularly upset that she was gone. He, when he talked about her, he talked about her in highly sexualized ways. Yeah. Like, he could he could tell them, you know, when they said to him, like, how would you describe Rashonda, he told them her bra size and yeah. her weight, but could not know her birthday. Right, and you he said, yeah, that
0: little girl, but she was developing, like, a yeah.
1: video, you get here to say, yeah. and he said that, He, was he would spin out these scenarios of how some stranger might have come around and saw this pretty developing young girl and decided to take the opportunity and snatch her and um and he could easily have overcome her because she didn't have any fight in her. He he said that in in one of these interviews. Yeah. Um which are by the way you can hear these recordings of these this is when oh and it was this investigation in nineteen ninety where there was the first of a series of long involved interviews they did with John Aykroyd that are very revealing. And it's a lot of his statements and his obvious lies and kind of misrepresentations in these succession of interviews from basically 1990 to 1993 that um, are part of what helped convict him. And by the way, there's kind of a new crop of investigators come into awareness of John Aykroyd at this point. A lot of the investigators on both the rape case of um, Marlena Gilbertson and uh, in the murder case of Kate Turner have retired or, you know, aren't around anymore, and there's kind of this new kind of crop, and it's a different era too. Twelve years right. have gone by, and it's quite you know things are a bit different, and yeah. you can sort of see things. They're not kinda... making the same
0: assumptions. Yeah.
1: yeah, and um, although as I said, with K Turner's death, he was always the primary. Well, well,
0: like one of the investigators, the and that's... I'm sorry if you were going to bring this yeah. up, but it stuck with me because I just watched the videos. I only read the first story, but and then I watched the videos yeah. and haven't read the stories yet. Said that um, there was a fatal car accident. And the highway workers told the other guys to kind of get away. He wanted John Aykroyd to help him get the body out of the car to see how he would react to a dead body. And a, a dead young female a body. A dead young female yeah. body. And John Aykroyd helped him. And his remark in taking the body out of the car was she weighs about the same as my stepdaughter. Did. Yeah. Yeah, she's about the same. Yeah, he's or whatever. Yeah, like, so yeah. So his this, reaction was not the reaction a normal man, especially like, one oh, whose stepdaughter sad. had disappeared yeah. right. would they,
1: have. They, one of the other along you mentioned this before. Another thing that happened. Yeah. Investigate. Oh. They found a pair of pants. That, um, out in the woods that looked possibly like it could have been Rashonda's pants. And is it, I guess as it turns out, it wasn't. You know, At least they couldn't prove that they were. But they showed the mm, pants to John yeah, like this, Becky. And he visibly got an erection yeah. and got a wet stain on the on his fly because uh, obviously it excited him to see these pants. Yes. And there was all kinds of stuff like that. This is when you really see investigators say, this guy. Yeah. They, and, he, and the investigators say, we knew. He did something to her, and he killed her. But the lack of physical evidence—they said they never found her body. They still haven't, by the way. And they said back then, in so 1990, there was—it was, it was yeah. much more difficult. He like said anyone. they're really, mm-hmm. you know, trying to make a case and a prosecution without a body was much, much less common then. Yeah. Um, and they really felt like if, if they couldn't find a body and real proof that she was dead, yeah. there was only so far they could and go. And we've talked
2: about this on other shows where. They don't want to jump the gun in prosecuting somebody. If they get acquitted. And especially with a girl that age who's missing, she could possibly have run away. I mean,
0: I'm not saying that's always a thing. That's right. But she had an unpleasant...
1: So what seems to have happened is she and her brother had gone to stay with their biological father in southern Oregon. Medford. Medford, Oregon. For a few Medford. weeks. And it sounds like um, in they get into it in the video uh, much more what happened. And this is again shows that people knew what was happening in that household. He, the father had heard from relatives that they thought Rashonda was being sexually abused by John Aykroyd and he actually sat them down on the couch. And it sounds like he was well-meaning but maybe didn't handle the situation. And he was religious. As best, you know, and, oh, Jesus. Well, it also sounds like he was he just didn't handle it they well. They didn't have a
0: close relationship Yeah, they, they, they
1: barely knew him. He said, I want to get the whole story, and I'm going to call the police and get them after that stepfather of yours. And Roshanda apparently was very upset by it and didn't want to stay. And but she... she
0: did admit to him, in, according to the video, that, yes,
1: it had happened. Oh, I, I missed that part. But I yeah. know she admitted it to her school friends. Yeah. He... But she was all upset by this and wanted to go home. Um, and so she ended up going home alone, and her brother stayed behind. Yeah. When she disappeared, he was still at the uh, father's. According uh-huh. to the
0: video, she didn't want to go home, and she fought going. No, home. No, she wanted
1: to go home. She
0: wanted to go back to
1: back, but town. she didn't want to go into the right, trailer. Right, right. right, So she gets back to St. Junction. Right, she doesn't want to, but she doesn't. Right, so she wants to go back to where her mother is. She did not she didn't want be to be in the house around. with him. Right, yeah.
2: right. right, and.
1: So, yeah, so she went back to Sanctum Junction, but she kind of was desperately trying to find a cousin or friends or anything who would take her in. Her cousin said she was absolutely terrified of going back to the trailer. She She, hid in
0: the closet. Yeah, she wanted to be near.
1: She wanted to be near her mom and everything, but she didn't want to be alone in the house. And, of course, now what you have is her brother Byron was back with the father. And she, the prospect of, maybe it didn't even really occur to her when she got mad with her father and wanted to leave and go back to her mother the kind of implications, but once she got there, she was like, right. she didn't want to be alone and, and with And
0: Byron, it's kind of poignant because they interview him in the videos and he's very good, says he'll never forget they drove away and she was looking out the back window of the car at yeah, him yeah. and he he just was...
1: That's the last time he saw right, it. Right, and yeah. it was
0: this thing where he just felt he, this feeling of doom. Yeah, and, and he
1: said he was a year older and always yeah. felt like he was her protector and everything and maybe the, you know, whatever. Um, he said he himself didn't know right wasn't really aware of the sexual abuse which is not uncommon but she had told her female friends at school what they think happened was that the biological father had actually called up the mother Linda and said I am reporting this to the police and they think and she told John and and they think John Aykroyd was like okay I've got to get rid of this kid you know and it was two days after she came back and that clearly Linda told John that you know um, he was being reported by the father that. Rashonda disappears. Yeah. So her case basically goes cold. With and by the lack way, the mother, Linda,
0: you know, they ask, well, d- did he abuse Rashonda? And she's like, no, you know. And then the son talks just this horrific, daily, horrible abuse from him. And they yeah. ask her if he abused the kids in any way. She's like no well not really he was very strict and you can just tell she even realizes she's, yeah, she's
1: lying even simultaneously right. she's it's, almost she's, sort of saying well maybe maybe not you know she, she's a she, sad case yeah, I, mean, yeah, I mean you've got to feel sorry for her and in fact her her son byron even says he said because a lot of people you know are, of sure course are blame very her. Right. blame her and he said look he said it's not like my mother wasn't culpable in some way but let's be clear the, the most of the blame is on John Affleck. Right, He's the one who was abusing us. He's the one who killed my sister and got rid of her. Right. He's the one and who's it's really involved. And call.
0: It's, a, it's almost like a brainwashing. Like, yes. She's, she's so conditioned. She didn't have a lot of options. And it's funny because this the documentary, or at least the videos make quite a big point about how marginalized women are treated. And it's kind of funny. The only non-marginalized one, Kay Turner, is the one that they were finally able to get a conviction on. But there doesn't seem to be as much recognition that a marginalized woman like Linda would be kind of forced into the situation, and there aren't a lot of people who are going to be able to stand up to it. Right. He killed right. other people... He could friggin' kill yeah, yeah, her. Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly, you know? yeah.
1: So the one thing, though, that begins to happen is as the, you know, within a month or two, um, it just looks kind of hopeless, given what they had in those days, to pursue a case like this with nobody, and really no physical evidence at all. And
0: no understanding of psychological, like, psychopathy.
1: Yeah. Oh, also, here's a little, though, a little instance of the manipulation and how, and it clearly was like a planned killing. He, what seems to have happened was he came back probably in the middle of the morning and abducted her and God knows did what with her. He basically kind of set up an alibi for himself. What he told investigators that happened was that he decided to go some parts he thought were in. He went to the station you know, to do his work and the parts were not in, so he decided to take the rest of the day off. And his supervisor, well, that's news to me because there's always plenty of work to do, but apparently that was par for the course with him. He comes back in the middle of the morning. There's always these kind of hunting things in mm-hmm. his alibis and his stories, these references to Be- hunting.
0: Because they're well, besides the psychological thing, it's hard to disprove. Right,
1: right. If mm-hmm. Yeah, if out you're out hunting somewhere no cameras out there. So he he told he said he found his stepdaughter, she was on the couch watching TV. And he said to her, well, I'm going to go to this place and take photographs of deer. Do you want to come along? Huh. And she said no. Huh. She had to do her chores. So he left, and that's the last time he saw her. Mm-hmm. People saw him, like, kind of later in the day with a camera. Like, he made yeah. a big deal. Like, one of his coworkers saw him drive by earlier in the morning. Mm-hmm. And she waved to him and everything. And it was like either he didn't see her or he was trying to, like, not acknowledge her existence she said she saw him come by again a couple hours later, and he had this camera with him, and he made this big kind of oh, show of, you know, kind of flashing the and camera it, right, around. And at and least one, Oh, I'm out photographing. Right. And at least
0: one person said he never took a picture of a fucking deer. Yeah. His right. Life. Right. Yeah. I know. It's, you know. I mean, he's not a guy who's going to go out and take yeah, pictures of deer. Yeah. So it, it, you know,
1: and, and the scareders knew this, but again, they couldn't really pin anything on him. But one of the things they did do is they got a call from the, whatever the jurisdiction was that had Kay Turner's case, the guys who were working on Roshanna's disappearance got alerted by a, I think it's Lincoln County, called them and said, they're in Lynn County. Hey, you know, have you looked at this K Turner case? He was the primary suspect in that case. We never could pin it on him, but maybe you can find something. And that's when they decided in Lincoln County to revisit the Kay Turner case because they figure they all basically said, this guy is killing They One of them says that, they said, "We, this guy's a serial killer. Yeah. And he's going to keep killing people. Who knows how many things yeah, he may right. have killed. We've got to get him on something. And what? they figured Is- the case where they had a body, or the or remains, that they needed to go back to that case. And so her case, and the, as it turns out, um, that's the case that finally brings and him. And we're up to the early yeah, 90s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. So within three years, basically, they'll have a conclusion on the investigation of Kay Turner, and various new things will be brought to light. In the meantime, though, it just kills me this cousin we've mentioned before that Rashonda had tried to stay with she talked about how you know of course she doesn't know that John Aykroyd is the primary suspect in her cousin's disappearance and she's still getting rides from him and stuff yeah she said it was it was maybe in the weeks after Rashonda disappeared and she needed a ride and he gave her a ride but he stopped by the side of the road on highway 20 and he turned to her and he said this is would be a great place if somebody wanted to dump a body where you could dump a body and she said she suddenly felt kind of i mean this is her uncle john right you know but she's like uh and he says oh i have to pee do you need to pee too and she said oh no oh no i'm fine and she said he goes off into the woods and she sat in the truck i mean you know, if you know what the highways like, there's nowhere she could have really yeah. walked from there. Um, but she said, and she was kind of afraid to go anywhere, or do anything. And she said he was gone for about 15 minutes. And she, she remember she was sitting there thinking, boy, that was a weird thing that he said. And also, boy, he's taking a while. Time mm-hmm. and then he got back in the truck and drove, and they drove on. And she thinks, and the investigators think, he was checking the dump spot right. where sure they and was. they've gone back. But and she can't
0: remember exactly where it she was. She can't remember yeah, exactly where it was. Roads, I mean, but summer.
1: um, some point in the in the months after Rashonda's disappearance, I think it was the same cousin was in the truck with John getting a ride, and she saw two teenage girls that she knew who lived in Sweet Home and asked john if he could give them a look too and that's how he met uh, melissa sanders and sheila swanson sheila. melissa was 17 and sheila was 19 oh actually no this was a while after Rashawn died because i think it was the spring of 1992 they have evidence of that's when he would have met um he began hanging out at the sherry's in lebanon oregon lebanon is another town along the highway uh, where various locals hung out and listened to cb radios if you mm-hmm. remember that <laughs> And apparently, in those weeks in the spring of 1992, John Eckward was there almost every night, and he would always apparently make a beeline for these two teenage girls. These were girls that were both high school dropouts. They kind of were, kind of had a rough upbringing and had gotten into some trouble, and were seen as kind of wild. Then in May of 1992, these two girls, Melissa's family, went out to the ocean to camp Liverpool. at Beverly Beach. Yeah, remember, we I, think we, we, I we went, we camped. Yeah, like it was there. really on the beach. So and, than us. And, uh, it, and apparently it, yeah. for Melissa's family, it was, it was supposed to be kind of like family time and trying to rein her in a bit. And, yeah. But what happened was they got bored. Mm-hmm. Late that night, oh, they called one of the girl's boyfriends and said, you know, come and get us. We're really bored. Whoever got the call could hear the ocean in the background. They were calling from a payphone, of course, and it before cell phones. The boyfriends either weren't willing or weren't able to come and get them. We're
2: not driving all the way. And they
1: basically said, well, we'll hitchhike back home. And that's the last anyone heard of them. Uh-oh. Their families got up the next day, saw they weren't in their tent, but they, I think, had heard the girls had been saying, oh, No, we're, gonna were going to get out of here. Going. And, of yeah. course, you know, as it was, was the case maybe with, you know, that family. They were 17 and 19. Well,
2: I was going to say 19. I mean, yeah. Yeah, they you they know.
1: were, you know, not little kids. And they were like, oh, I guess they went back home. And it wasn't until later in that week when they returned home and realized, Melissa's family realized Melissa had never been back home. They called Sheila's family. She had never returned home. Wow. And um, Melissa's family reported Melissa missing. Um, Sheila's mother apparently had already started putting out posters that she was missing and never bothered to call the police, part because it's like a lot of these working class people, the, the police... You know uh, they the, don't really help us out, out, you know. We've stuff. noticed
0: that in a lot of documentaries that the poorer people are much more cynical about the kind of help they're gonna yeah, get. Yeah, right. From it the was police. good reason
1: often, you yeah. know. I mean
0: that why you know. bang your head against the wall. Yeah.
1: So around this time, a couple of John Aykroyd's coworkers were at a special shift, they were at the Odot station in Sweet Home. Oh, John Aykroyd had been transferred there. Because the ODOT workers, particularly the female ODOT workers at Santium Junction further, further east, further up in the mountains on Route 20, were uncomfortable with having him around. Quite a few people thought he had something to do with his stepdaughter's disappearance. Mm-hmm. And the women, and they said something about his behavior uh, as well, and Ugh. just the All implication. Like the supervisor of the Sweet Home Station, which is further west, you know, kind of more um, getting towards the coast, said, I don't want that guy here. And they're like, you don't have a choice. And he, he's like, this is not a good thing. He's going to be much less supervised because they basically were saying, oh, he's not going to really work under your supervision. Right, you don't have
0: to even worry Yeah, about you don't even
1: have to worry about him or keep track of him. All he has is permission to park his own personal truck at your station and pick up the ODOT truck there and then go off to Newport and, and do his rounds. And the guy's like, he said even at the time he said to them, I don't think it's a good idea for this guy <laughs> to be so unsupervised. And they were like, sort of like, for them, it was just getting a problem employee kind of off the yeah, back. we all worked at places yeah. like this? So, we have, I mean, as well,
0: long we, as the problem employee yeah. doesn't bother management and stays yeah. out of your they're, head, they, they don't want to deal with it. They, yeah. Yeah. You
1: know? so, um, so, anyways, they remember, they were sitting, they said it was about 9.30 p.m., and usually the station would have been closed down by then, but they were there was some sort of special reason why they were there. And suddenly, John Ackroyd shows up in an ODOT truck, and they're like, what's he doing here this late? And he walked by them, covered his arms and hands, covered in blood. And he was to go walking into the washroom. And they said, John, what happened to you? And he said, oh, I ran into a deer and I had to gut it out and everything. And they said at the time, these guys are obviously hunters and stuff, too. And he's like, for one thing, you kill a deer or some other animal, you just threw it into the ditch. And then later, he changed his story and said he had done it for a friend, gutted out the deer. Then he said he, both stories were totally implausible. You know, we said in the middle of the night, you're gutting a deer? You know, you know what? They, so they thought it was really weird. They told this same supervisor who was not happy about having him, you know, kind of attached mm-hmm. to the station and he thought it was really weird. I don't know if he actually said something, but of course they didn't know anything about the girls or anything. Right. And I it was only you know, later. Yeah. It was then. Even even they said even after the girls disappeared, they they disappeared much closer to the coast. And you know they didn't really. No one made a big thing about it. You know these girls in their late yeah. teens are kind of wild. It wasn't yeah. like there was some big sort of thing like oh my god these girls are missing. And it was sort of like oh you know who they probably like went. They probably took off somewhere. You know they said until later on their remains. were. found Uh, yeah may 3rd was the last day the girls were seen in october um i think it was loggers who found october 10th found the remains and um one of the girls her legs actually had been bound with leggings and she still had her shoes and socks on the other girl was found totally naked and i think they also find articles that have been cut you know articles of clothing that had been cut um so they found the remains of the if girls. i re- if
0: i remember from the video one of their the pants were cut the exact same right way, right Marlena right Gabriel's yeah kind of down
1: that. the insane kind of thing right and uh, that was when these odot workers said hey wait a minute the when those girls again you know, when they found the remains of the girls they were like oh my god It would have been around the time those girls disappeared that we saw John Aykroyd showing up, and that's when they told the police, or that's when the police became aware of it, and he becomes a main suspect in the investigation and their death, but it was only just weeks after that that he was finally arrested.
0: Did it say in the articles, I'm just asking, because when I was watching the video, I thought... Because he was befriending them at that bar. Yeah. If maybe they called him for a ride. That's what I wonder. That could be. Because yeah. pay phones don't have phone records. Right, And so right. my first thought was, well, when their buddy didn't come, they said, hey, let's well, call. Well, he, yeah. Had, yeah. Been, he had been... He had been... about yeah. driving up and, up and down. Yeah. The
1: girls have been talking about going to the coast Just for this for camping thing vacation. Thing. He suddenly starts talking about how he has a house in Newport, and he's going to have a party that weekend. Oh, And yeah. no one else was very interested in going to this party, but the girls apparently expressed interest. And people in the Sherry's restaurant, you know, were of the impression that thought it was very likely that he had been in contact with them. Mm -hmm. They showed up a day later on the coast though, and that's why they didn't end up meeting up with him in Newport. But they think and the investigators are certain that he was trying to set up a meeting with them. A party um, of three And what was seemed to be happening He knew that the Turner investigation was zooming in on him. Around the same time, the detectives were circling. I think they already had, I don't know if they had actually detained Beck already by then for the Kay Turner killing. But whatever was going on, he knew that it was only a matter of days, if not weeks, before they would come and get him, or he might be arrested. And and so investigators think he wanted, like, one... Yeah. He, he was... He one like, last... One last uh, big spree. Man. So the girls disappeared May 3rd. May 31st, Roger Beck was arrested for the killing of Kay Turner, and the same day, John Ackroyd cleared out his storage locker at the Sweet Home ODOT station. Um, and then June 12th of 1992, Ackroyd was arrested, and the remains of the girls were found uh, October 1992, and in October 6th of 19, 1993, Ackard was found guilty um, in the Turner killing, sentenced to life with a minimum of 20 years. November 22nd, 1993, Beck was found guilty with the same sentence. So and do
2: they think they did it together? Yeah, they, they think one they, they did. Um, the things
1: that Beck said, he had been in trouble with the law, he had a history of domestic abuse gross. and violence. But... He was arrested somewhere else on a sex offense. And at first they really thought... The Eckroyd was just using him as a kind of excuse and a potential alibi. Fake but then alibi, is, yeah. But then as they, and I think it was a lot of Beck had bragged to a lot of people that he and Eckroyd had together killed this That's woman. That's
0: why you never do it with somebody. raped her
1: and killed her. Oh, also, also, the forensic analysis that they were able to do by the early 90s did show that she had, I guess maybe whether it was there no, semen or whatever, that she had been raped as well as killed. But the other
2: and, thing I have a question about is, so... They found semen on her shorts. With Marlena's story... Because um, there was no body... Yeah. To find it on where his
1: friend oh, was he the friend? I don't think so. Well, and it's not even clear, I think it's somewhere I seem to remember they identified who the guy was, and he claimed he didn't really even know John yeah, that well, and uh, it wasn't back, but I thought that too. When I, first. Yeah, I mean, just to give you some idea of what else happened, but 2010 the Lynn County Sheriff's Office re examined okay. the Rachanda pickle case, the DA. Actually, uh, brought an indictment in that case. It, by 2013, in March of 2013, the Lynn County Grand Jury indicted Ackroyd, who was already in jail for the K. K. Turner uh, case. And he, in a plea deal with the acquiescence of Byron, Rashonda's brother, who was afraid, what they were afraid was that it was coming up to the time where Ackroyd could go up for a parole. Mm. And, um, and on the one hand, Byron said he would love to have Ackroyd tried for his sister's murder, although they still have never found the body. And yet, one of the things the prosecutors told him is that there is always the risk that he'll get acquitted, especially because we don't have a body. And and if that's the case, his case for getting parole would be much stronger, and the risk of him getting out on parole could be much more likely. Mm-hmm. And But he said it was the most difficult decision he ever made, but he decided, okay, I'll agree to make a plea. And so John Aykroyd pled no contest to the charge of, uh, the murder of Rashanda, and also agreed not to seek parole. Oh. And then he never would admit to any of these killings, even the Turner killing, which it was where the evidence was most obvious he would refuse to say where roshanda pickles body could be he refused to admit to the other the the melissa and sheila murders he ends up dying in prison december 30th 2016 and they tried
0: to interview him it says like a thing at the end of each video and he refused yeah yeah he and Beck both refused
1: to be interviewed oh i do have it's interesting i didn't i I should have talked about it with the turner case i do have a, a segment of the police report from august 1979 um, when they were really interrogating him, Ackroyd, about his story, about seeing Kate Turner that day that she went missing, and how he changed his story l- later than in 1979, as opposed to right after the disappearance, said so that he had actually talked to her. And he had mm. this weird story about a dog running out on the road. And, yeah. And then he also talked about visiting the remains of her body in February 1979, that he had accidentally, of course, come across um, the remains. And that's yeah. what he really that's first knew came it was. The yeah.
3: And oh, he described in gruesome
1: detail the state of her body, and he actually touched her. And they think, actually, he said he actually touched the body. And they think one of the reasons why he suddenly that was that he they had given him a polygraph that he failed uh, uh and he and one of the questions was did you ever touch k turner and mm-hmm. and apparently he had a lie meter really really spiked Jesus. and that was his way of kind of explaining right. that he had okay. yeah. but anyways i mean it's yeah. really he described what looked like knife wounds and also a bullet wound in her chest and they think He's describing, in fact, what, what he, he did yeah, to, yeah, her, to her. He did. So there's a kind of inconclusiveness. Yes, he gets you know, convicted in prison for the killing of Kay Turner. He does plead no contest in the Rashonda Pickle case. He never admits any kind of connection with the Melissa Sanders and oh, yes, Sheila it. Swanson murders. But there are all kinds of very, very strong circumstantial oh, evidence sure. that he did that. Yeah. And he never admitted to the rape of Marlena. I just will end by saying there are some particularly in the 70s number of either missing persons cases or remains and or items of the missing people found along Route 20 that investigators now think there's very very strong likelihood that he's responsible for these people getting murdered as well and who knows how many others that just have never come to light right. so I'll just end by giving you a quick list of the these other possible cases so and this is 1976 the skull of an unidentified woman found off Highway 20 on Swamp Mountain. They think she was a woman under 35 from what they could tell. So that's one. In 1977, the remains of Elizabeth Musler, of 22 of Lebanon were discovered in a shallow grave in the Thistle Creek area of Green Peter Reservoir. She had last been seen several months before by her father in the town of Lebanon. She's the only one of all these where they had found remains where there was any kind of even attempted a burial, so that was maybe just a little bit atypical. But there are other things about her body and everything that they think looks similar. And who
2: knows when they say shallow grave, right, gray, right, they right, right? What that really I mean, really like means. if she really was covered up, they wouldn't have found her. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah.
1: In 1977, Karen Lee, 15, and Rodney Grissom, 14, had run away from home, were making their way to California. So they said they called uh-huh. a friend of theirs mm-hmm. in the Midwest from the town of Lebanon, and the last thing that Karen Lee, that the young girl, said to the friend on the phone was, "Oh, our bride just arrived i've got to go never seen again their mm-hmm. ne- bodies were never found but months later karen's jeans pages of her journal and the blouse she had sewn for a school project were found off a logging road in the upper soda fork area of lynn county which is the county that Ho- sweet home is in five years later some of grissom's clothing and possessions were found not far from where karen lee's things uh-huh. were found um this is all right in the range right. yeah. China in 1978, the skull of another unidentified woman was found by a logging crew in the woods a quarter mile south of the Highway 20 near near Snow Creek. Um, so this is from the Ben Bulletin, and they said, No evidence linked according to any of these other deaths. But the cases remain open. No
0: evidence linked into the ones that we already know. Know did. Their timing and proximity
1: to Highway 20 prompted investigators to wonder if the mechanic had a hand in them. And various of the investigators who were interviewed in the videos are certain. One guy says, Okay, K. was killed in 1978. John Aykroyd doesn't kind of come back on our radar until 12 years later when his stepdaughter... Oh, disappears. I'm sure. He says, I don't believe for a minute he wasn't yeah. doing oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. And those yeah, intervening 12 was. years... It was
0: a perfect scenario for him. Yeah, yeah. And the woods are big.
1: Yeah. People disappear. And, and People they, don't get... Re- the investigators said... He's what's called an opportunistic killer, and he was in the perfect job. yeah.
0: In the perfect
1: place. In the perfect place, uh, unaccountable for hours and hours at a time. And Um, nobody... nobody, In a situation where if he drove up in his ODOT truck, and you were stranded on the side of the road, you were like, hooray, someone someone reliable is is coming to help me out.
0: Like with Kay Turner, all the obvious things he did when she first disappeared... And yet, he got away with it. Yeah. So, he must have been emboldened.
1: Yeah. Like, he's not going
0: to not kill anybody for 12 years. Well, one
1: thing, one of the things the investigators said, though, that they feel that the attention brought to bear on him In the aftermath of the Turner death, Mm -hmm. he learned some lessons. One of these guys said, and he said he learned what not to do. He learned how to cover his tracks. Don't go back and discover the body. Yeah, Yeah, don't. don't, Yeah, don't come running. Hey, I found the remains. That was weird.
3: Well, I think it's part of his narcissism. narcissism. Yeah, it's
2: the narcissism. But I also also might
0: have been afraid somebody had seen him, or right, right, or there was something to link him, right, or who knows? Because one thing we know is that people get very nervous about after they dump a body. Right, right. About right. And
1: they've got to go back. and keep. But another oh. thing that linked him to the M- Melissa and Sheila murders was that where they were dumped that day that the girls would have been, you know, on the highway hitchhiking, there was a witness who saw two girls getting into yeah. an ODOT truck. It was kind of down the road aways from Newport on Route 20. And there was work being done on the highway further east. Uh, The dumping ground was right at the last turnoff coming from the coast. That you would have to go down to avoid the flaggers and Ah, all the all the work 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 people people and everything. Yeah, who would have seen him in a truck with two young girls? So where they Uh, were found was just off the last turn before you got to where that work was happening. You know, it's. Well, um, well, one thing I like. One thing I
0: like about the videos that go with this, and I don't looked at all their stuff yet to know if they do this in other forms too, is they keep showing a map yeah, the road and yeah. where yeah, things yeah. happened so you can locate it.
1: And it's and, really striking yeah. when you when you see that map with all the incidents yeah. and the remains and where they're all found and everything. The pattern is yeah. very, very... Oh, yeah.
0: And even know, it's not beyond the, the realm of possibility that he wasn't the only serial killer right, right. working Route 20 because right. we know that there's a lot of them out there who are never... Yeah.
1: Or there but, may have been occasional individual crimes, one-off right, things, yeah, but you, right. you know, and but there's
0: but, probably more, I mean, you had the list of remains that were found, Yeah,
1: that's weird. but there's a
0: lot of remains that we, are never right, found, exactly. because those woods are so, They're even lovely, dark loggers, yeah, loggers
1: <laughs> yeah, and hunters, I mean, yeah, you loggers
0: and hunters, I invite anyone find. who
1: goes to Oregon, drive along that highway, it's beautiful, but you'll see how remote, yeah. how undeveloped, how perfect it is for anyone who wants to get rid of yeah. bodies and the right. evidence of a crime. I think I'm
0: amazed at how many times people are found, frankly. Oh, I right, know, I, know. I, know, I think people don't may not realize Oregon, like Maine in a lot of ways, there are just these huge remote wildernesses right,
1: right. Yeah.
0: that it's worse than a needle in a haystack. Right. I mean And he
1: knew this whole territory intimately. Right. He'd grown up there. He'd grown up out in the woods hunting and fishing and and that's one of the things I keep saying. He knew exactly where to right. take them. And also,
0: body. although he was an opportunist, he had that sense that I think a lot of serial killers and other psychopaths have of lots of times, except for in the case of Kay Turner and his stepdaughter, knowing who his targets were and how much he could get away with. Right, right, right. And, you know, he's not going to take the suburban mom with the stroller right. with the kid, right. you know, who's going to Walmart right, right, or whatever. Right. He's taking people... The dropout
1: girls, right, you the know. Bro- the, the, people, the Native American girls. The right, people yeah. who the
0: cops aren't necessarily going to yeah. believe. Yeah. The people who aren't going to necessarily be missed. Two
1: young teenagers hiking, you know. Right. Or, or hitchhiking, rather. Yeah. Who ran away yeah. from yeah. home. And, from and home. they probably told
0: him their whole story how they uh, ran right, away right, right, yeah.
1: you oh, know he, and he was a big burly guy too yeah. like the people who revisited the melissa and sheila case the female investigator said one of the things she said could he have really overpowered the two of them and then she realized once they, you know, he's a, he was a big, burly guy. Um, well, also... And she said it, it would not have been difficult. It's, it's happened, happened before, before,
0: especially if they were in his confidence, right. if they thought of him as a friend, they, right. and their guard is down, right. you know, right. and also, yeah, it's happened before where the guy will use one of the girls against the other, like, take off your clothes or I'm going to stab your friend. Right, or right, sure. Whatever, right. I know. don't think it would have
1: been difficult at all for him, and the same mean, thing with the two young... Plenty. I mean, it was a 14 and 15 year old, the boy and girl couple. Yeah. I mean, they were young teenagers. And
2: if you kill one of them in front of the other one, then guess what?
0: The other one's going to do what you want.
1: Right. They know right. You're gonna, right. right.
0: Right. But the thing is, too, he's very... And you can see this and hear it, because there's so much audio. You can see how people are easily convinced, and his denials... He's not like those guys, like an innocent man, which I'm going to talk about in my NNW writing, where they're like, okay, maybe I had a dream where I did this. I mean, none of that right. shit. He just out
1: denied Except it. for yeah.
0: You know, Kay Turner, where he knew, where he had to explain why there were certain ties to her. Then he changes his story a little. But the rest, you listen, like, about Rashonda and stuff. No, I didn't do it. I just didn't do it. I wouldn't do that. That's sick. Who would do that?
1: After he spun out this really sick scenario, then who would do that? That's really sick. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Just the way people think somebody won't confess to something they didn't do, people tend to be inclined to believe somebody who... Really adamantly denies that right. they did something. Yeah. Well, you know, if he did it, there'd be some little part of him where he'd be able to yeah. tell. Yeah. He, he knows how to manipulate people, mm-hmm. you know, yes. and he knows yeah. how to manipulate the right people, and you know. Exactly. But one thing I want to say about Oregonian what they did is, you know, people talk about kind of the demise of newspapers and stuff, and their package on this is such a great example of how you can meld print and digital. You know, with the videos and the interactive stuff, the maps, the website, and their articles, they did a really great
1: job. Yeah, it was really, I highly recommend people can find it by just doing the Oregonian ghosts of highway 20 and you'll all come up and you can access the entire project and it's yeah. really really well done and and very sensitive to to the family and the victims and in fact it's in a sense kind of vindicating a, them and and kind of putting them out there as people who right. cases have been neglected people and, haven't been and the hard work him. of the investigators too who really worked hard to try and get this guy you know and,
0: ultimately and, and one thing i like with the videos is they do what i think makes a good crime documentary is they let The people do the talking. There's There isn't that kind of narration that you don't need. You know, and they have words, so you have to be paying attention on the screen. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a lot of that over-narration that you get. And the people tell very compelling stories. They're all articulate in their way. And you wonder how much work the videographers and reporters have to do to get...
1: One of the stories. features that you can link to is they they have a a link where you can go and they show how they did it and it's oh, really it's I mean it's and we're talking about a massive amount of yeah reporting work and research. I mean they've
0: been working on this for years. Yeah, yeah,
1: it really shows and it it also I think highlights how difficult it is to and how commendable it is when people do really good news reporting.
0: Well, one thing about journalism. Um, when it's done right is reporters and journalists can can ask questions that the police may not be able to or don't ask and they're under a you know an ethical obligation to be accurate and to be thorough but they can tell a story that may never get to court or be told in court and let the viewers make up their own mind Mm -hmm. and i'm glad you brought that to our attention thank you thank Thank you you. very interesting case It was. Boy, Oregon just keeps giving. And and as I was
1: saying, too, uh, for a state that has, I mean, it's uh, more people than Maine. It's about 3 million people, a little Mm -hmm. over 3 million people. uh, But it has a a murder rate that's pretty consistently lower than the national average. Do you You know know
0: what the murder rate is? I
1: don't know. I know there were about 80 murders statewide last year, Mm -hmm. which it's several percentage points below and that's been consistent. If you look at the trend line since back in the '60s, yeah. you know that the, the
0: serial killers and dementia. the murder rate goes
1: up <laughs> and down with the national average, but it's you know about half the rate right. nationwide. It's actually you know not a state where violent, at least not this kind of violence. But crime it does is.
0: seem there's just something about the Pacific yeah, Northwest yeah. that just seems to maybe be it's all those
1: big dark killers. green forests yeah. where body dumping can be so achievable. Yeah. I don't know. It does seem to attract us kind of sur- a number of the most notorious serial killers yeah, so. it does.
0: well thank you you're welcome and i think we all have some recommendations
3: <laughs>
0: okay so i'm doing my recommendation on a documentary that i watched that i actually didn't want to watch at first and i'll explain why in a second but I ended up watching the first few episodes twice because I liked it so much that when I did, I actually wanted to my rating to be informed. Because when I was watching that, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'll rate this. But then I liked it so much. And it's um, An Innocent Man, or The Innocent Man. The like Innocent Man. The Innocent Man on Netflix because that's the one. Except there was that Billy Joel song. Thank you for putting that in my head. And it's funny because it's actually about four Innocent Men and why I didn't want to watch it is because of this is stupid. There's a John Grisham angle, and I'm not a big fan of John Grisham. You're I'm more
2: bitter than jealous.
0: Yeah, yes, yes. Because he's written 40 books. But this is his only nonfiction book. He wrote about one of these cases, and he's one of the people who talks in the documentary. And I actually didn't realize he was involved in the Innocence Project, and I like mm-hmm. him more now after watching this. So it's a look at these. Two cases in Ada, Oklahoma. And it turns out in both cases, two guys in each one, different guys, were wrongfully convicted by the same folks, by the same crew of cops and prosecutor. I'll just go through our rating. Reenactments, they have them, and they have many, but they are not bad reenactments. You know, I do have an issue where things are reenacted. First of all, they pay attention to the decor of the times it was the early 80s that these happened in fact one of the young women was born the same year i was and it's like oh that's kind of it's know because they keep show a gravestone and also they subtly change the reenactments like they'll show the same one but they subtly change it to show the new information and, they, new and they
2: don't have it, it's a subtle reenactment it's like they show somebody The back of someone knocking on the door, right? Like when the
0: mom of the first, it helps you visualize what the person is saying because what they do is they don't have the people like acting with voices. Mm -hmm. They'll have like the mom of the first victim, Debbie Carter was the young woman's name, talking, and they'll show like she said, "I got the phone call," and it shows the woman in the kitchen. It doesn't show her face. It shows the back of her and it's a very 70s, 80s looking kitchen and talking on the phone and that kind of thing. But she's talking over the reenactment. And so they show the reenactment, but have the actual person talking. And that helps quite a bit. It reminded me in some ways, but not at all. So I shouldn't even say it, but in some ways of the tower, which was awesome. I can't say enough about it. it. So the reenactments were good. And also they got people who looked like the people, only younger versions of them. One woman was stabbed, raped, and horribly abused and strangled and killed in her apartment. She was 21 That was in 1982. Two years later, a young woman who was a clerk in a convenience store was abducted Mm -hmm. in Ada, Oklahoma, and they did find her remains a few years later. Narrative cliches, there really weren't any. And again, it's like we've been saying recently, when a documentary doesn't have an actual narrator but lets the people in the documentary do the talking, you don't get a lot of narrative cliches. You get some people's perceptions. Yeah. Like, particularly gender, you get a lot of uh, gender perceptions of behavior and also things, this was the 80s, perceptions of why somebody would do what they did. But even with that, there isn't a lot. The talking heads are people who are involved in the case. John Grisham, who wrote a book about one of the cases, this other gravelly voice guy who had been a reporter and wrote about the other case I think mm-hmm. his was called Dreams of Ada. John Grisham's was called The Innocent so, Man. So, And people who knew the people, so you're not getting a bunch of, like, cultural experts yeah. blabbing on, which you know how much in they In fact, the only
2: expert is that one guy that was very interesting, the one that specializes in...
0: Yes, he was great, yeah. The racial's and racial, ra- racial and, gender. and gender stereotypes, not really. Again, different people have different perceptions of behavior, I would say in this, when we talk about making a murder, we talked about the documentary and then the people in it. And mm-hmm. this, there were what we see a lot of the stereotypes about people who are poor and stuff and what the people in power think of them. And, and all the principles in this are white anyway. So right, so there wasn't a lot of racial. I'll say the only racial thing I'll bring up, but it wasn't part of this, is I saw an article about this whole thing, and there was another case where a black guy from Ada, and Ada's oh, not having a time, they showed him had been, getting out. Okay, yeah. They showed him getting out of prison, so maybe it was... But they never talk about his yeah. case, and yeah. maybe it was different in a lot of ways. But race doesn't play a part, which I guess in its own way is a stereotype, but yeah. there are no black That's people. In right. the gender, the documentary itself doesn't really have gender stereotypes. The visuals were excellent. A big part mm. of this is the interrogation videos of the people yeah. involved, and there were more of the two guys who were convicted of the clerk, Tommy Tom, Ward Tommy and Ward. Carl Fontenot, who reminds me of so many people. Oh, I knew back There are more of them than there are Ronnie Williamson and Fritz, the two guys who were convicted of the first one. One very interesting one um, that I became kind of fixated on is of Ronnie Williamson, where they're accusing him, and and I'll talk a little more about this particular video and storytelling, but in this part where they're accusing him, and he's kind of laughing at them. And he's like, you guys are so, you got this so wrong, you're so fucked up. And, he, and there's one part where he just goes, ha, 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 ha. And okay. I had no idea, watching this because of the storytelling part, how these things were connected, yeah. who was guilty, who wasn't, and everything. But watching that, I'm just like, this doesn't seem to me like a guy who did it. In fact, he doesn't even seem like a guy who's worried Although about... He, he was mentally ill. So. Yes, he was, but he was. Yes. But he wasn't reacting no, in I this understand. video like a mentally ill guy. He was no. reacting like a guy who's a little... Incredulous. Incredulous, yeah. and the cops are on his ass all the time, and he just thinks this is more bullshit. Yeah. In fact, he tells the guy, "Well, this is more bullshit, and at the end of the video, they showed a couple times, he actually said, the cop says, well, do you have anything else to say? And he says, well, good luck to you. You know, kind of basically, I didn't do it. Go yeah. find who did, and he walks out of the room. And so they use these videos from the early 80s, and I don't know if the quality is I know it's bad because of digital, the difference between, you know, video and digital now, but I don't know if they kind of make it a little bad in some cases for effect, whether they do or not. It's great, and they also show a lot of, like, police reports and mm-hmm. stuff. They show, like, when somebody's talking and, obviously, lying. The police report yes, that chose yes. the yes. lying, especially the prosecutor. Yes. We have another Ken Kurtz-type prosecutor. This, is, this documentary, in many ways, reminds right. me of my... Right. Yes. yes. So, missing pieces, um, there are things they needed more detail on. There are uh, questions I had. I want to read the books now. I don't think they left anything out so much that you can't understand what's going on. The story isn't told in a linear way, so you have to kind of figure things out. There was one thing... That confused me with a TV reporter who also thought she was at a party that Tommy Ward was at, and the prosecutor's reaction, or the cop's reaction to her telling him that, which was, I don't want to hear about it, and then her testifying, and I thought, well, they don't say what she testified about, and then when I watched it again, I saw it was telling the cop is what she testified about, and that she didn't really testify about the party at all. I get it. So it's basically, she's just like, it's basically, she was just like, hey, I was at that party, too. Not that I did or didn't see Tommy Ward. And so she tells the cop in the hallway of the courtroom, I was at that party, and goes, I don't want to hear about it. And... That's what she testified about. But it wasn't totally clear. Part of it is because of the nonlinear storytelling, and part of it is just maybe there's just too much detail. There are things I want to know more about, but you do know enough to know what's going on. Inaccuracies, anachronisms, not really... I am, as much as I hate to do this, going to take off half a point. Ronnie Williamson was a baseball player, and he had these dreams of Major League. And they do a good thing with the whole dreams thing, showing different stuff, which may be confusing to some people who are very literal-minded. Although I am, and I didn't have trouble with it. But they keep showing Mickey Mantle, who was from Oklahoma, and at one time was like one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And they keep showing these videos of Mickey Mantle, and I was concerned that some... People watching won't know who Mickey Mantle was. He played for the Yankees. I don't know if they mention Mickey Mantle's name, but the implication is this guy from Oklahoma dreamed of being, and he actually made it to the majors a little bit like the next Mickey Mantle. So they keep showing Mickey Mantle, and you feel like people are almost going to think, that's him him.
2: yeah yeah if they don't know i can see people yeah so
0: that so i'm taking off half a point just because i get what they were doing there but i think people don't pay enough attention to realize with the dream sequences some of what they were doing storytelling is fantastic i thought they start at very very first starts in this midwestern Christian church with hardly anybody yeah. in it, and the guy, the preacher, is saying to me, how you doing, how you doing? And then he goes up and sings, not great, but it's one of those yeah. kind, of, kind of Protestant, gospel-churchy songs, and it really, really sets the tone, and it turns out he's the that father of Tommy Ward, yeah, um, one of the guys convicted. And the show does a great job, as did making a murderer, and I think the the um, the Highway 20 thing, too, of setting the tone of the area. I mean, there's a certain tone to Oklahoma. And a kind
1: of culture. A, a, a yeah, kind of yeah.
0: culture. Yeah. The young woman, the cousin of Debbie Carter, who yes. was the first murder, says, you know, we have churches. One of the things about Ada is we have blah, blah, blah churches. And and I looked up the population when I was watching. It's about 16,000. Okay, good. Like. I was going to ask. so. Um, About the size of Waterville, Maine. But that's a small town for a lot of wrongful convictions, though. So they do a great job with setting the tone. I'm going to give some little tiny spoilers here for people. I think you can still enjoy it if you watch it, but I have to to talk about the storytelling. The videos, they don't come out the very first time they show you this and say, this is blah, blah, blah. They show the videos, and that one of Ronnie Williamson laughing at the cops, it turns out, was a Brady violation. It was a Mm two-hour interview. that that was suppressed and never gave, that anybody watching shows there's absolutely no sign indicating any kind of guilt whatsoever. Later, they get him just like they get one of the guys in the other case, and, and to talk about a dream they may have yeah. had, and then that's used as evidence. So that must have been one of their interrogation techniques. Yeah. But also the yeah. videos... And that's what the guy, the, the expert says. Right. Yeah. And, and the videos of Tommy Ward and Carl Fontaine two guys arrested in the clerk's conviction. By the way, her body was found after they were convicted. So they convicted without, without a body. A body yeah. They had had long, long, long interrogations of these guys, and then only filmed the part where they were, the guys were telling the story back yeah. to the yeah. cops, and it was kind of these out-of-context things. The interesting thing was is the two those two guys got every single detail wrong, including they did, what they did with the body. Died, what she was wearing. Once every the single body, thing.
2: Everything was the same. But, but yeah,
0: they're both, and here's a spoiler, they're both still in prison Ooh, wow. because Dang once they found her remains, there was no way... It it proved she was shot, where they had said that she She was stabbed.
2: She wasn't wearing the same clothes they both said. Right.
0: But, like, there was no DNA. Ronnie Williamson and Dennis Fritz, I'm sorry, he's like the least of the four guys, although he had a very sad story to tell. There was DNA. There was a lot of shenanigans. But the thing is, they don't tell you this all at the beginning. When I first started watching, I knew nothing about it, except for somebody was innocent. And I'm like, how do these two stories connect? Yeah. It turns out it's yet another story of police and prosecutorial malfeasance where evidence is hidden. Yeah. And it's funny, at the end, and this is another aspect of the storytelling, they have people, and actually kind of well-meaning people who worked in the court, there's a court clerk and stuff saying, well, I don't think anyone deliberately did anything. It wasn't some big conspiracy. But yeah, there was evidence, yeah. like Ronnie Williams' mother kept a journal, and she and Ronnie were home watching movies. They had gone and rented. That's when he had to rent the video player and right, the movies, right, rented right. a bunch of movies. She kept the receipt she had in her journal. She gave those to the cops, and it was months and months and months and months after the murder that he was finally arrested, and those disappeared. The guy who actually did it was the only one who put Debbie Carter and Ronnie Williamson in this bar together and said that he was bugging her and everything. Well, it turned out this guy was bugging her, and other people saw that, and in their initial reports to police, they named him Greg Gore, but then later his name wasn't in any of the things. So they honed in on Ronnie because he was kind of nuts. He had mental health problems. He was a pain in the ass to the cops. People in town were afraid of him and didn't like him, so he was a good target. Poor... Dennis Fritz was his only friend. He was like
2: drinking buddy, basically. He was a drinking... because
0: Dennis's wife had been murdered, not by him. <laughs> they had a little toddler, and he was at work, and a neighbor guy came over, young man. He went into the baby's room, the toddler's room, and was doing something to her sexually, yes. and she kicked him out of the house uh-huh. and said she was going to tell his uncle, who was their landlord. He came back and shot her through the window uh-huh. of the house with the toddler there, and then de- when Dennis came home from work, he found her dead. So he kind of went off the rails and had a bad history of drinking. So he was Ronnie's friend, and Ronnie's baseball career had been wrecked by injuries, and so his dream had died. And so there were a couple sad sacks. There was no evidence whatsoever against Dennis Fritz, and yet he was sentenced to life in prison and missed getting the death penalty by one vote of the jury. In any case, they let you learn about the story, and I'm going to have to take it off another half point because the only issue I had is The last two episodes focus on kind of what's going on now. And there's this reporter, and she's good. Her name's A.C. Hilton, and she's one of the researchers for the documentary. Mm -hmm. And you get a lot more of that, her driving around in the car, talking on the phone to somebody about stuff you already know about. And it's still good, but I feel like it drags. It takes on a different tone. I've kind of had it with documentaries where there's somebody driving around in the car, talking on a phone to somebody, telling them something we already know. You see it all the time now. Um there's a lot more of her if it's giving you information ruminating. Right. So the style changes a little. And so I'm taking away half a point for that. Repetition, there's a lot, but it's to an effect. Like the videos of the guys confessing, you learn more and they show it they again. And, and you're seeing different it differently. Yeah. Right. The reenactments, you learn, oh wait, she wasn't wearing this, she's wearing that. Yeah. They show the reenactment. The thing, the first time they show the reenactment where the guy, there's a guy in a car and his nephew goes into the store, you You see him there smoking a cigarette. The nephew goes into the store, you think the nephew's going to do something. And out of the corner of your eye, a couple comes out. Well, it turns out she was taken out of the store by somebody as this guy's Uh... nephew was going in. He went in and there's nobody in there, and it took him a while to figure out. That that's what happened. So every time they show that reenactment, it's a little different. Yeah, yeah. The, and the videos that they show over and over of the confessions, it's to a point. So it's not this repetition just to fill space like I'm 48 hours. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's to help tell the story. And beating the drum, no. It's once again telling a story of cops and prosecutors. And you get... Like, people in the show kind of being... Like, people like, oh, was there some big conspiracy? Of course not. We don't do that. We do the best job we can. Well, they didn't do the best job they yeah. could. And I don't think it's where they all get together and say, hey, let's nail this guy. But it's these cops get on a certain they right. track. I think it's a group. It's groupthink, too. Right, it's groupthink, and these... Tommy Ward is a loser. And the pressure to so get, get convictions yeah. and right. yeah, there are, are points a lot of out yes. and the fact that they won't admit they're wrong. Mm-hmm. But this documentary does mm-hmm. a very good job, just like making a murder yeah. yeah. of nice showing right. through these people's yeah. own words, actually, the prosecutors and cops' own words, how they fucked up. And what I really love is the judge, who was the judge in a lot of this, um, who they, they interview, interview extensively, yeah. and he is great. You know, the things he says and stuff. You know, he's not one of these guys who's like, well, the prosecutor isn't wrong. And then the one expert, the guy on false confessions, he really he's great, too, because he gives context to what you're looking at and why somebody would do that. And no, they're not being beaten up to give the yeah, confession, right, 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 right. but how you can... On. Yeah. And they always start
2: with... the. We were talking about this before. They, they, they start always, with a weakling. Yes, they start with the person who's maybe mentally... Right, d- Carl dis- Fontenot. ...disadvantaged, and then making like a murderer. Right, with Brandon, Brandon Brand- Dassey. Right,
0: and in this, Carl Fontenot, he, he came from a horribly abusive, poverty-stricken home, and low even IQ said to somebody, IQ. I'm kind of glad I'm convicted, because now I'm going to get three meals a day or something. But he also really, really wanted to please... He had a low mm-hmm. IQ... And he told them the story they wanted to hear and implicated Tommy. And And the funny thing is, like, their false confession. At first there was this third guy, the ringleader, Odell. He was a Native American. But it turned out his alibi was two days before the girl was abducted from the convenience store. The cops had beaten him up and broken his arm. And he was laid up at home. It was his upper arm that was broken. And he couldn't do any of the things they said he did. But they're like, oh, that doesn't matter. It was a dream Tommy had. And he's Mm -hmm. substituting himself for this oh, guy hey, and I don't, don't know how the jury So oh, anyway, that's good. nine points. An innocent man The great. Innocent Man. Was very good. It was so good. Watching it the second time I got a lot I'll more have to. Yeah, oh, It's, um, Netflix, very good. it's right? on yeah. Netflix. Ooh. Almost everything I watch is on Netflix because I don't.
2: Mine is also from Netflix, and it's not a true crime one. Although I almost did that one we watched on something. Um, oh, on Yeah, that was good. I almost did that one. Maybe I'll do that one next time. But it was a good one. I'm doing dogs on Netflix. Now, first of all, we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but I wanted to just make a note about another thing I was watching on Amazon, which The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. One of our things that we rate on is anachronisms and inaccuracies. I watched the first season... And now I'm partway through the second season. I don't know if I'm going to continue to watch it because the anachronistic dialogue especially is driving me fucking I wouldn't be able to take and it. And I cannot... So I stopped watching Manhunter. I understand it's, it's the look of it and the whole series is stylized and everything it's not supposed to be a historical document i understand that huh. but when people say i can't even don't go there but there's yes wait or for you don't get to blah 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 yes. they use the term perp walk they have a guy saying uh, wait for it. There's just so many like things that are just within like the last 10 years. Right. Much less, you know. And 19, as we've talked years, about, if you're, gonna, if you're going to
0: pay that much attention 60 years ago, you're yeah. going to pay that much attention to get even the makeup I know. right and the dresses. The clothes and the, are beautiful. Right. I mean, yeah. the, the clothes it, How hard is, is it
2: to get the dialogue. I did look online to see if anyone else... I, I like, Googled anachronisms and Mrs. Maisel, and there are people that have Thank the you. same feelings as me, and I'm not a historian by any means.
1: And but it's not difficult to find out how people were talking Well, lost. you know but what? My feeling time. is... There's a lot of television shows. Leave showers, the, the slang jargon out. That,
0: yeah. Well, yeah. like, this
1: is my idea, but I'm not a
2: linguist, and I don't really want to do this, but what would be a great thing for somebody to do is to create a database where you would, and I guess it would be a language historian, or somebody, if you are writing a script and could submit it, put in a it year, would, like a red line, blind, like yeah. spell check. I don't think a lot of people care. I mean, well, I do. Look I, at Mrs. Mazel's winning golden globes, all this shit. I think
1: a lot of people aren't really aware of how language has changed. I still remember how I showed for one of my women's history classes I showed some clips from the 1930s and it was stage door with Catherine Hepburn and mm-hmm. Ginger Rogers and everything bantering back and forth you know then I stopped it so we could talk about like what was going on and a couple of the students said why are they talking so funny <laughs> and I'm like I'm like you know that was 70 years ago and, yeah. p- and they were using a lot, a lot of slang of from the 1930s I know, and like I said people people's have- accents were different People had different and there was function. different slang yeah. I, said, I said language changes all the time and they're like oh really
2: oh, yeah. wow! and it's not that difficult to
1: find no. source
2: material right, right. Like right. and also not like the, you know, and also, if you don't know what they did, not like Shakespearean right. English
0: know if you if you don't know what they did say you are aware because as a writer I when I think about the dialogue I write you are aware what phrases you're using and what phrases are fairly recent even if you can't make them sound exactly like they sounded back there you can not Put in.
1: It's almost My more cynical for, take on this is that, frankly, I wonder people, if they're doing it deliberately because it's like, oh, people can't really. But also, know,
2: the one discussion group I found linked to an article where they interview Amy Palladino, who's the executive producer, did the Gilmore Girls. Oh, yeah. Who said, oh, we did all this research to make sure everything was accurate. And it's like, fuck, you did. Maybe the clothes? Clothing stuff. stuff. Most people were in agreement on this comment section, but somebody posted that um we're a bunch of assholes apparently Mm. because this we let this bother the her whole act is anachronistic so because she's kind of a supposedly supposedly like a uh, kind of lenny bruce type of thing which she really is uh, she's way too it's way anachronistic and i understand that and really she could have been it could have been when i saw the 70s i thought
1: she was kind of like a um, a a Joan Rivers, Rivers type. She's
0: similar to Joan Rivers too, but she's more. And the thing is, too, people don't have to be bothered by it. That's their. Yeah.
1: That's their. It bothers me. But, but, right, but what it, I'm saying is, my what I'm yeah. saying
0: is, if you're not bothered by it. That doesn't mean people who are are full of shit. People who are brought, bothered by it are looking for More a fantasy. higher level yeah. of yeah. why bother to have it in that's the 50s. That's what I don't understand. Right, right, why right.
2: you even? What, why anyway? bother? So obviously, because it's on our list, that's why we talk about it because it does bother. Right. Us. And that's our friggin' list. Right. And, and if you don't, if you and don't, and you're not about, doing your
0: rating on it, but we did discuss want to. I just wanted to talk
2: about it because it was bugging me. Yes. Okay. So. I did Dogs on Netflix, which is a I was anthology to watch
0: series. It's six.
2: It's six episodes, and I haven't watched the last two. I thought I I was going to, and I didn't. It's not that tear. I was afraid dogs would die. No, dogs do not die. Oh, okay. Right. No, there's no death of dogs yet. Okay. Maybe in the last two. So it is a it's a six part series. And it has different directors. Amy Berg is the executive producer. They're kind of in the same style documentary, but they're they are six different directors. The first one is about a a young girl who has epilepsy, severe epilepsy. She gets grandma seizures. I really like this one. There's a training program. Her parents and her, she's got a sister who's either a year older or younger. I think maybe a year younger. Like I said, what did I say? She was like 14, maybe Mm -hmm. 13 or 14. They're early teens, both the girls. And they're going to this place. Apparently there's a place, it's almost like a retreat type of place where you go, where you meet the dog and you spend like 10 days there with the dog. Oh, Because it's going to be a service dog that's been trained to sense. You apparently exude some kind of odor that they can sense when you're going to have your seizure. And so the dog usually knocks you down and holds you down and stuff. So they talk about her meeting the dog. I think it's a labradoodle. It's really good. I did cry in the first one. I was called a kid with a dog. The girl's name is Corinne and the dog, the dog's name is Rory. Very cute dog. And all the dogs, all these service dogs, I mean, they're always so cute because you can tell they're really smart and they're so attentive. Oh, the thing that made me cry was there was this little girl there who also was getting a dog who was probably like four. She has some kind of condition where her muscles don't work very well. And so the dog is going to help support her when she walks and stuff. And I think hers was also, like, they're all, like, lab mixes, it seems like. Yeah. And she was so cute, and she she liked to dance and stuff, and she was dancing. I don't know. There's something about her. She has these little glasses. Yeah, and, okay. Oh, my God. Anyways, that was what <laughs> made me cry. The girl with the, the older girl with the epilepsy was whatever. She was, you know. What I felt bad about was her sister was, like, because one of the first things they say is, this is not a pet. No one is allowed to give the animal treats except oh, for... Yeah the person uh, right. that their person yeah. because they have to bond with that person they have to have their focus only on that person and if there's somebody else in the family that feeds them or something their attention is going to go away from this person and the sister they're interviewing her separately and she was crying and she was like you know, I was told we were going to have a family dog, we are going to have a pet, blah, 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 blah. And now I can't even give the pet treats. And I feel bad for her because yeah, it's, first not first of all, it's, it's not, not a, a family dog. It's not a family dog. Not for any fault of her own, but her sister has gotten all the attention most of her life because of her condition. And this poor girl's like, I want to have a dog, and I felt like I was thinking, you know, they should give her a cat or something. Yeah. Or but anyway, so fish, goldfish. And, and I want to say all these documentaries—they don't have narration. It's all that type of that we were talking about. Right. where They talk to the people and they show things, and there is some on-screen script. Um, especially the next one, because the next one is called Bravo Zeus, and it's about this guy who's Syrian and he's living in Germany. So he has this dog, who's a husky named Zeus, who's left. He had to leave him in Syria. He couldn't bring him when he went. They wouldn't let him. So Zeus is staying with his friend. But his friend is getting worried about where they're living and has to leave. And he can't. He's like, I cannot keep your dog. I've had him for two years. So this is all about him trying to get the dog. So that's what journey. the documentary is about, is him getting the dog back in Syria. And I don't want to spoil what happened. But his friend is like, oh, he's not going to remember him anyway. He was a puppy when oh. he left. But he so the second one has a lot of subtitles. The third one's in Italy that also has subtitles because it's on like Cuomo. It's a fisherman who has a dog named Ice. And his dog is 10 and goes on the boat with him every day. Oh. And, um, I
0: think that's the one they have the picture of, right?
2: And, uh, yeah, he's worried about what's
0: going to happen when the dog dies.
2: And also, there's an overlying storyline about his family because his son doesn't want to keep being a fisherman. And they have a restaurant and all this stuff. The fourth one is a lot different than these three because it's called Scissors Down and it's about these two Japanese dog groomers and the Japanese people are crazy weird about their dogs and put little clothes on them and have tea parties that they bring their dogs to but it's a, a man and a woman the two different dog groomers and they go to this there's a dog grooming competition a huge one in LA every year and I cannot stop thinking about Uh, Best in Show. When I watched Uh this part, it was good, but it didn't have the same... Even though they did show the two groomers with their own dogs, it had a lot of different people in it, and it just didn't have the same feeling. Number five and six I haven't watched yet. The next two are about people with stray dogs and stuff, so there probably Uh will be dog suffering, so those might be bad. Uh But as far as the rating system, it's going to get a 10 because there are no reenactments. Oh, that's up. There are no real narrative cliches. Maybe Close would be the one with the Japanese, but I think it's just because it reminded me so much of Best in Show. They really, I mean, there wasn't much narration. It was the Right, it was just showing what they did. Lack of good visuals, no, as a matter of fact. Especially the late Cuomo ones. It's so gorgeous there. It's beautiful. Cuomo. I'm sorry. You're saying Cuomo like Maria Cuomo. <laughs> that's why I kept thinking of Mario Co- Cuomo. <laughs> late, <laughs> that's because I'm in low That's where George, um, yes, George Clooney Yes, lives. George Clooney. The late Como. Sorry, all the Italian listeners. Yeah. But it's beautiful. <laughs> even though it's a lot of it's winter time and stuff when he's going out yeah. and fishing. So missing pieces, no. I mean, it's just they're telling the story. Inaccuracy, inaccuracies. Not that I know of. I don't think right. so. Storytelling is very good on all of them so far. Freshness, I'm going to say it is fresh because they go into, like, I thought the one about the girl with the dog was very, uh, probably I've seen stuff similar to that before, but it was still the way they did it was good. And the Syrian guy was, that was my favorite one, I think. That was so good. And it's not something that you, would think about much as people, you know, it showed a young guy, a Syrian guy
0: in a good light. He wasn't some kind of... Also, You it makes you realize that when people are refugees and have to flee their country... Yeah, well, what had, they leave, leave behind, yeah. yeah. And then
2: he's a young, he's young, and it's just, it's just so, that was the most, I think that was the most heartrending one of all mm-hmm. of them. Repetition, not really. And also the fact that each one is a different yeah. little documentary, and they're only about an hour long. Beating the drum, nah, not really. I
0: mean, Except for
2: dogs are good. Some of them, I wish they'd focus more on the dog. The Italian one, I wish it would focus more on the dog. So, in all, they, I give it a 10. Okay, maybe I can watch that, it. I think even Sounds if you're good. not a dog person... They're well-made, short documentaries that are very interesting so far. Well, they're also about the people. They're about the people, yeah. yeah. And they're about people's
1: relationships with the dogs. And the dogs are so cute. They're such a good good boy. Like, especially
2: those service dogs that were so cute. But the husky, Zeus, he's a really big husky. And I didn't realize that Siberian huskies are fairly small. A customer mine had two, compared to what you think of. A customer mine came in with his two dogs, and I said, oh, they're not very big. And he... He's like, oh, Siberian huskies are small. It's the uh, Malamutes and the, the Alaskan huskies. Mm-hmm. That I, that. I didn't know that. But, yeah, the, Zeus is fairly large, and he loves to play. He oh. plays with all the neighborhood kids, and there's, like, bombs and shit going off. <laughs> so I highly recommend it. Liz?
1: So I have a, something I missed that I wanted to mention about the case so could I just talk yeah, about yeah, it yeah. I don't think I talked. I was talking to dad about this and I forgot it but it's really interesting there was a woman named Jane Morris 24 years old who was running around Camp oh, Sherman no, that same it. morning and but it's really interesting yeah. because it adds to the culpability of John Aykroyd when she heard that this woman was missing who had been that very day running, and she realized some people were mentioning seeing Kate Turner, and it was probably her. She said, oh, I better let them know, and she hadn't, I don't believe she saw Kate Turner herself, but she said, I better tell the police that I was out running too and about what route I did. So she went and told them, and she said, you know, a couple of times people drove by her. Uh, you know, she doesn't really, you know, uh, right. nothing really registered that was distinctive, but years later, I don't know if she mentioned it at the time or if it was not until John Aykroyd was on trial back up in the early 90s, a few months before Kate Turner, you know, that Christmas Eve when she was out running and Kate Turner disappeared, back in the summertime, she had had an encounter, and it turns out it was with John Aykroyd. And she, didn't I don't know if she realized it was John Aykroyd until the 90s when he was on trial. Right. Because, you know, at the time they were doing the search for Kate Turner, it's not like john eckroyd crime suspect yeah was being talked about right? right it was only the investigators who right. knew uh, she was a, a waitress at Butte ranch which is a kind of tony resort nearby and she was riding her bicycle back to where she lived in camp sherman and she was I'm she like was that. in her waitress yeah. uniform and she's riding her bike um, down one of the roads and she said she saw this O.DAP truck kind of parked off a little turnout And some guy was, like, in the back working, you know, getting something out of the truck or anything. And as she went by, suddenly he came out and pointed a gun at her. Ah. And started screaming at her. And she thinks he was what he was. She didn't even... Listened too much, but she thinks what he was saying was telling her to stop yeah. and come and come come towards him, where he was going yeah, to shoot her. Right. And she said shit. And she just said she put her head down. She just she
0: serpentine too. Yeah, yeah, she
1: serpentine. <laughs> she she just booked it and peddled the fish. She said, yeah. but she said she also woke because she was afraid right. he was going to shoot her, right. but she was also afraid that he would get in the truck and come after her, and he oh didn't. My God. Right. But she went past where she lived. The you know, and and she went right to the store. And she reported this incident, and it was months ago, so it was back in the summertime.
3: Right. And
1: then, I don't know if she even really, if it came to mind when she told them that she'd been out running, but when she saw him um, arrested for the murder in the early 90s, she's like, yes, that's definitely the guy. Yeah,
0: And she did the smart thing. You know, a lot of people would be so intimidated by that they, they would go stop. with them. But you never ever. Go I saw that once on a self-defense for women thing. Yeah. The
1: cops said, never even if someone's play. got a gun at you, no, even at close go. range, right. he said your likelihood of you getting away, no, yes. even with a shotgun wound or something, and surviving is right much anyway. better. The minute you, yes, you, never, minute you get into you the vehicle go. with them, right. Right Never go with them. Don't no. go with them, even no. if you're Some risking. Kids, injury. kids,
0: if you're listening at home, yeah, I'm glad you remembered that because when you were talking. I had a vague memory, and I can't remember what it was. Well, I had been
1: telling Dad about it, so it. but I have a very brief review, and I won't really use your criteria because I'll use some of the elements of it because it's not a documentary, but it is a crime drama. We use our criteria for any media. So I can kind of go through it quickly, Um, and it's called Babylon Berlin. I think it's available on Netflix, but it was originally produced for German television. I think it's now in its third Hmm. season or it's beginning its third season. I only saw the first season. Um, And it's set in 1929 Berlin. Of course, it's all subtitles because it's all in German language. And it is really, really good. It was very expensive. I've been told it's the most expensive TV production ever in German television history. And it really recreates the look and feel of 1929 Berlin really, really well. The acting is excellent. Of course, I don't know any of these actors. A couple of the older ones look familiar. I've probably seen them in German movies. But... And it focuses on a young detective who's been sent, I think, from Cologne or Hamburg on some kind of mysterious investigation that, as you watch this first season, um, has to do with corruption of the police department, as well as mm. kind of the internal governmental officials. Um, and he strikes up a relationship with a young woman who, as it turns out, does sex work on the side, you know, from a very, very poor family and goes to this nightclub every night, you know, which is the big decadent nightclub you know that everyone's going to in berlin Uh, but she also gets a job kind of processing crime photos at the police department and they kind of run into each other and start working Kind of on this case together, and it's, it's really, really good. So I've had 100% um, I have
2: 100 on Rotten. The
1: acting's excellent, the writing's excellent, the story is really good. What it, about the
2: German? No, and
1: that's just it. Now the language—it's it's translated from the German, but there's no kind of current American slang being Dude, used. Dude, wait
0: for it! Yeah. <laughs> um, so,
1: um, so it's really—I highly recommend it, and especially if you're interested in that time period in history, that I think really, it's really, I'll really. Have
2: Okay, I'll have to watch no, it. Something that done Yeah. Well, thank you for Yeah, thanks for, for having Thanks for having me. I and enjoyed it very much. And also for cooking
0: the dinner we're going to eat yeah. later yes. tonight. That's it. Yes. Too. Becky I think it's your turn next time uh,
2: yes I know I have to think of something yeah you'll
0: have to think of something and if you want to look for past episodes or anything Crime and Stuff Online is our website yeah if you can find all our links and on our iTunes and all that stuff yeah. and we're on Twitter and everything
2: yeah, we, we go through Twitter. the whole thing yeah, you just know who we crime are Crimeandstuffonline.com has what you need okay is there
0: anything else we had to say?
2: I don't think so. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks happy for new listening. Year. And although, happy
1: holidays and Merry Christmas. Yeah. Well,
0: although this will be a couple weeks later. Oh, yeah. After. yeah what so better. Better. And also, we don't have to eat at a certain time.
1: No, I know, but I'm getting hungry and I but want we to Well,
0: we have you. the snacks. Sure. That's why we brought the snacks. Oh, Jesus.